welcome to a brand new episode of Third Degree Burn. I am Tim Elliott, and with me I have the entire crew. We've got David Thompson. Top of the morning. We have John Hyatt. <laughs> hey, good morning, everyone. Got my coffee. <laughs> we have Kirk Greenfield. Good morning. I think we're all asleep. <laughs> and last but not least, we have my uh, co-creator, uh, uh, Brian Hughes, who's going to give us a little rundown about what this special episode is going to be. Yes, I am. But first, hey, how's it going, guys? How you doing? All right, so we have got uh, a, a, a different kind of show today. We've been doing uh, different things over the last couple of weeks, and uh, this is no exception. What we're going to do, we're calling it Afterburn, because one of the things that's happened over the years is John Byrne has worked on various books. As you know, in most cases, uh, Byrne has left the book either early or um, for uh, you know reasons of his own or something unusual has happened. And the books usually have had to scramble to uh, put in a new creative team or to, you know, recover from whatever has, you know, changed. Uh, the, the biggest example, of course, would be like The Incredible Hulk, where Byrne was on it for about five issues. And <laughs> because Jim Shooter... After the fact, told him he couldn't do all the things he was doing, Burn up and just quit the book and left and them. And we covered that book on a recent episode. Yeah. And, you know, it, you know the, the, the recovery of it was, you know, quite unusual prob and completely different from what Burn himself had intended. So we want to take a look at some of the, you know, the other books in there. I think, is, is, are one of you covering the Hulk? I'm I'm I took the easy road because we've already kind of covered that. So yeah. I'm taking the Hulk. Yeah. And, and so we're going to we're going <laughs> to kind of take. Well, I mean, it, it bears repeating regardless, because mm -hmm. I'm sure we have new listeners. And, you know, just, you know, we didn't talk as much over what was done versus what Bernard planned. So, uh, you know, there's nothing wrong there. And I don't know if David had a chance to look, but I was curious if there was any information on sales, whether they went up or down. We know. I mean, we've got information as far as what happened on X Men, but you know, on the other books, it's uh, it would be interesting to know. And even yeah, there, there's, okay, there's not great yeah, there's not great tracking of that stuff until kind of early two thousands when Diamond was publishing their you know top one hundred. Right, yeah, I looked, I couldn't find anything, but yeah, me either. But um, anyway, so the question is, who wants to go first? Well, Brian, this was kind of your uh, your brainchild, so uh, I'd say we let you go first. Yeah, throw me yeah. the wolves, aren't you? Okay. <laughs> well, no, no, and you know, and the thing is, I, I think I took what was probably uh, one uh, of the, the 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 ones that had the obvious questions about it, and that is the Fantastic Four. And you know, as we know, Burns' regular run on Fantastic Four was from issues two thirty two to two ninety three, and his last issue was a, a very stunning cliffhanger because uh, a couple things. Number one, uh, in the story, uh, a black uh, dome field had shown up out in the West, and uh, She-Hulk and Wyatt Wingfoot and others were out there trying to figure out what was going on with it. Uh, Iron Man had gone into it and come out almost instantly, but had told him he'd been in there for several weeks, and uh, he was at the edge of death. And She-Hulk, while noticing that the field was getting larger, <clears throat> started pushing against it, and her hand went in. And eventually, she got swallowed up by the field itself. And they had figured that uh, whatever was going on in the field, time was moving much, much faster than it was out in the real world. Ultimately, the Fantastic Four go into the field and find uh, 
ancient but huge buildup of city around there. And then they find statues of themselves as they appeared long ago. And then that was the end of the issue. Uh, moving on into that, of course, the the reason why uh, Byrne left, of course, was that he had been starting his work at DC uh, on Superman. Nothing had been released yet, but um, he uh, was getting a lot of flack from Jim Shooter. Uh, he had turned in a cover for issue 293, and Shooter rejected it outright. And I believe they went with one that, uh, was it Kerry Gamble or was it Jerry Ordway had done? And I'm going to have to look at that real, real quick because I didn't write that down here. I'm a dummy. Vamp for a moment, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but do you remember this, the, the, you know, the how the Fantastic Four went then? You know, just were you affected by that and trying to figure out what was going on? I did. All of a sudden it was like very, very different art. Yes. And I thought, okay and i thought it would be a fill-in and then a couple issues later there wasn't uh, a return from john byrne and i was like oh, okay but i was overseas at the time so um you know it was like what the heck's going on here and uh, i really wasn't a fan of the new art i mean it was very very jarring compared to i mean i'm not saying it was bad i'm just saying it was jarring <laughs> well and, and I'll, I'll read this because I, I thought it was rather interesting um Bernard made a comment on his website and he said that you know a lot of things happened in my last days on the ff you may recall this is where i was gearing up to uh, being my run on superman and being perhaps a bit pollyanna in my younger days actually thought i'd be able to work on both books without interference i'd even been given a blessing of mike hobson then the putative publisher but alas, I overlooked the office of editor-in-chief. If you worked at Marvel in those days, one of the things that became increasingly apparent was that the books that were most successful were the ones that came under the most stringent scrutiny by the editor-in-chief. One would think it would be the reverse, no? That the poorly selling books would be the ones that, that got their feet held, figuratively speaking, to the fire. Eventually, it dawned on me that the editor-in-chief was not really seeking to salvage poor selling books, but rather seeking to lay claim to success of the books that were already doing well. Thus, the X-Books were constantly under fire, as were the Spider-Books and, of course, the FF, which was one of Marvel's top sellers at the time. Since it was becoming increasingly impossible for me to do anything right in the eyes of the editor-in-chief, my decision to do Superman was just one more nail in the coffin. Suddenly, overnight, I could do absolutely nothing right. Remember the return of Jean Grey, completely approved in every detail before I announced I was going to do Superman. After the announcement, it was redrawn and rewritten copiously. This is a rather long-winded way of saying the cover was rejected, for the same reasons all the other changes were made to punish me for being a bad boy. If the powers that be at Marvel offended you, offered you the Fantastic Four, would you do it? Oh, this is another question someone had um, had asked. But, but what he was saying though was that you that Shooter basically made it plain to him without saying it in so many words is that you can't work at both companies at the same time. What's interesting though is that uh, while Byrne, you know, when once Byrne left the the book, Jerry Ordway picked up and started doing the art. But Jerry Ordway was also working at DC on Superman. And then Roger Stern took the writing chores. And Roger Stern was also getting work at DC, not right away, but later, working on Superman. And yet they both kept their jobs at Marvel. 
Now, the stories that followed, of course, Roger Stern and Jerry Ordway and Al Gordon uh, did the, the, the follow-up two issues. And uh, the, the first one, of course, was issue 294. It was Hero Worship, uh, where the Fantastic Four, Wyatt Wingfoot, uh, had been exploring that Central City area searching for the, the She-Hulk. And she had been in that city caught in the time-accelerating dome with just hours outside was thousands of years are going on within. So, of course, they were worried that She-Hulk herself was going to be aged. But as it turned out, uh, there was a civilization down there that worshipped the Fantastic Four. And yet, once they get down there, they um, the, the people that are running the place call them imposters. Uh, the long story or the short story of this is they do find the She-Hulk. She's in suspended animation, so she didn't age out, and they're able to get out of there. Um, I could give the long story, but um, I didn't really care for the story. It was I didn't care for it either. It was, and I, I didn't. It didn't feel like. I mean, once I got into it, even though Roger Stern was writing it based on Burns' notes. It didn't feel like a Burn Fantastic Four story, and I, I didn't feel the Fantastic Four the way I did when Burn was writing it. <clears throat> but suffice to say, they were able to get out and get back to the status quo. Within two issues uh, later, or yeah, two issues later, uh, Marvel had brought back the Thing in a very special issue that was scripted by Stan Lee, written by Jim Shooter, and had a large stable of artists that came in and worked on that, including Barry Windsor Smith. Uh, let me see who else here. Yeah, you had That's Barry Windsor Smith, Kerry Gamble, Ron Friends, Al Milgram, John Basima, Mark Silvestri, and Jerry Ordway. Inking, you had Vinnie Coletta, Bob Wyachek, Klaus Jansen, Steve Leloa, Joe Rubenstein, and Joe Sinat. What were you saying? That's not the infamous one where, uh, where Johnny glues straws onto uh, Ben's No, that, that was a Marvel fanfare, and that was a hilarious okay. uh, story. I, I really love that one. Um, but no, if the the thing is, the cover, I believe, was done, but yeah, the cover was done by Barry Windsor Smith, and it's got Ben in the trench coat and hat, like I just showed you guys earlier. Uh, <laughs> it was the 25th anniversary of Marvel, so they all had that uh, wraparound thing on the cover where it had pretty much all the Marvel characters on it. Um, yeah, drawn, the gray frame. Yeah. They were like, yeah, they were like portrait, almost like portraits, close-ups of, of the character's face. Right. right. Now, after that, um, Roger Stern stayed on uh, for writing for another uh, couple of issues, and you had John Basima and Sal Basima doing the art chores. And I'm pretty sure it was John doing uh, light breakdowns and Sal doing pretty much the, the finished pencils and, and inks because it, it, it just didn't look like John Basima work beyond the, the layouts themselves. Uh, and it looked very much like Sal's uh, late 80s work, which I was not really a fan of, because it seemed like every character had two facial positions, closed, firmly closed mouth or wide open mouth with some kind of almost drool look inside, which was uh, that just something that, that wore on me, because he was doing that also, and he was doing um, uh, artwork in Spectacular Spider-Man at the time, I believe, as well. Yeah, and uh, I was not really a big fan of that either of his work there, and I think DeFalco was writing that. Move on to issue three hundred, uh, again by the same team: Roger Stern, John Basima, and Sal Basima. We have the wedding of Johnny and Alicia, with Ben Grimm as the best man, and the return of the puppet master. 
who of course was Alicia Masters, was it her uncle or father? Stepfather. Stepfather. Yeah. Stepfather. And um, so you know you had that, and then you move on, and then of course uh, the 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 uh, team changed after that. Uh, uh, Roger Stern started to step out of the window, and DeFalco, Tom DeFalco, uh, came in as the writer. And then soon after, you had the the, the team of Englehart, and uh, you had a couple artists on there, but they eventually uh, evened out to Keith Pollard being the de facto artist for a, a while before um, Walt Simonson came on as a writer and sometimes artist. Now, what all this boils down to, though, is you saw a number of changes in the Fantastic Four, a return to the status quo with the thing, but stories that just were not very inspired. And that's sad because Roger Stern is a great writer in my in my mind. But I just had no interest in staying with the book. And I, I don't know what the readership of the book was. I know that it was very high when Byrne was on there and that he had, has a, like a, a, a built-in stable of 50,000 readers that follow him to whatever book he's on. So we can assume that the book dropped down from about at least... 250,000 or 300,000 dropped by 50,000. You know, for me, you know, books were getting, they weren't as easily for me to store and get because I was on a ship somewhere. <laughs> uh, but so a lot of times I'd get stuff and then mail it home and my mom would put them in a box for me or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, the um, uh, John Byrne had, it's funny because for me, when he took over the book, I didn't think that there was a big drastic change in them. I think he slowly morphed them over a little bit. He took their existing – he didn't change who they were, and he just kind of flushed them out and made them more appealing to me uh, at that time. And But afterwards, it seemed things really changed. The, the characterizations of them kind of changed a lot. In my in my memory of reading them, I mean, remember this is what forty years ago, thirty five years ago, mm -hmm. and um, you know he had done so well with replacing, with switching out the thing and and bringing in She Hulk that it didn't seem like the Fantastic Four with the She Hulk wasn't the Fantastic Four to me. He kind of maintained that family thing when the thing came back to the Fantastic Four in those later thing, in those later issues, it seemed weird to me to have the thing back there because he had been so well-developed as a solo character and we had so such a good dynamic between She-Hulk and the the Fantastic Four as being part of that family that it seemed odd that, that it almost seemed like the thing was this intruder <laughs> to I agree. Me I agree completely. At that time. Yeah. Well, I always had the impression that Roger Stern and John Byrne worked so well together that they were like two halves of the same creative mind. And so when he filled in, so to speak, after John Byrne stepped away, I had the impression that he was trying to continue the storylines or the plot lines as his friend John had intended. And as that, that storyline played out, then he dropped off, that he, he was so to speak, going through the motions. Yeah. But I, that sounds negative, and I don't mean that, but completing the arc. And so I guess as he stepped away or was replaced by Ordway or whoever uh, um, you said stepped in, 
you could really taste that flavor change. And I think that's what, what you're describing as well. Yeah, well, you know, I, it, I think Roger Stern works best when when he's working on what he wants to work on. When he's working yes. on, like when he was on Spider-Man, that was definitely a labor of love. And then when he did the yes. Starman series at DC, that was definitely, you know, one of those things that he was so invested in. And you were you were just drawn in and pulled along with the character and you really enjoyed it. When he's sitting there having to take over the Fantastic Four and it's all A to B, he's got all these different things that he has to hit because of where Byrne was taking the story. Byrne did give him the notes for the two issues, at least that, you know, wrapped up that story with the She-Hulk. And then, of course, you know, Marvel had their plans for the 25th anniversary. And so bringing back the thing and then the wedding at 300, I think all that was planned out. So it was kind of an A to B. And when he has to write that that A to B type thing, he's filling in the blanks. But it's not necessarily going to be his best work. That's the way I looked at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, eventually, it, it to me, I, you know, it found its footing again, and and they, you know, you got used to the new the new paradigm, and and it and it worked fine. Uh, so you know, it, it was just that that very different dynamic the artwork and the story and the characterization and stuff um so it was just really jarring but you know it, it worked out and there were some great stories afterwards and some interesting things um i kind of don't like the fact that they turned alicia into a scroll but uh, i think Elijah was eventually uh developed into a good character so uh, it worked out that way as well so well that again you know that was a a, a jump on a there, there was a Legion of Superhero story that did the same thing yeah. five years before. Yeah. Where Colossal Boy got uh, was in love with uh, Shrinking Violet, and they'd replaced Shrinking Violet with a Durlin, who are also shape changers. Yeah. And once he, you know, she was revealed to be a Durlin, he still he'd married her while she was, you know, I thought she was Shrinking Violet, but he stayed married with her, mm-hmm. and their relationship yeah. continued. It was very organic. This didn't feel that way. It, well, it was a way to get. If they had stuck with it, but it was a way to get to re- to do a reset. Yeah. Yes. So, oh, we don't yes. we don't want him to be married to Alicia because possibly because Ben's back, so we're gonna make her an alien. And then now, you know, Alicia's back and she can stay, go back with Ben. And which which is a shame because that was kind of a natural progression. I thought. Yeah. Uh, whether you felt she would fall in love with Johnny or not, that was a you know, they had to progression for the characters mm-hmm. that she would you know stay with Johnny. And then you could do, introduce. Uh, well, I mean, Ben kind of got. Um, is it Sharon Carter? Not Sharon Carter. Who was the she thing? Sharon. Sharon Shannon, Ventura. Ventura. You know, they kind of had a, kind of was a hint of a, a romance there, but then she kind of went off the rails later. But, <laughs> uh, but she seemed like she was into him before she became the she thing. Mm-hmm. And then later she became kind of like a villain. I don't think I was reading at that point, but she yeah, I, I didn't they did some odd stuff with her. But, Just the period um, of the pineapple thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The extra rocky thing. Yeah. And spiky, didn't he become spiky thing at some point? Yeah, and but actually she becomes thing. a she thing and he becomes just overly... Yeah, then she, be, she started off as orange peel thing and then... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so yeah. Well, that's good. good, good comments there, Brian. Yeah, yeah. David, what did you think? Were you reading at the time, or was that out of your wheelhouse? Yeah, I floated in and out. Um, I think you guys summed it up well. That uh, you know, when I did pick up a FF issue, it, it just didn't do much for me. Um, and 
you know, unfortunately, I, I didn't come back to the FF for a long time, you know, because of that. Uh, you know, the FF have had kind of a rough road, you know, for the last, I don't know, 25 years, mm-hmm. you know, or so. Um, I, I don't want to say that their time has passed, but they need someone at the helm that can really write, uh, the, you know, solid family dynamic stories. And they've had, I'm trying to remember the series. Marvel's tried to resurrect them several times. Um, they just recently had a series as well that was halfway decent. But for the most part, um, I think after Byrne left and you had other people kind of filling in here and there, trying to, to do what they thought was right, just didn't fit the, you know, I call them the first family of Marvel. Yeah. Um, so, no, I mean, this... This doesn't hold any special place for me, even though this this should be right in my my lane for kind of peak reading time. Well, this was, I think, at a time, at least for, I can speak for, as, as a collector for myself, that I wouldn't necessarily jump off a book right away. Uh, and sometimes they would, and I think I've mentioned this before, a lot of times they would, uh, at least in the 80s, they when they brought in a new artist, that our new artist would kind of mimic the old. So a lot of yeah. times you didn't notice, hey, wait a minute, this is a different guy. Uh, and to John's point, sometimes they would just like, oh, it's just an abrupt change in style. And you would just, well, I've been reading the FF for five years. I'm going to keep reading it. And I and I think I stuck with the FF until uh, Heroes Reborn, until they relaunched it. Then I read that awful series. And then I think I, then that was that when Claremont came on, when they brought it back <laughs> into 616, Claremont was writing it. Uh, and I think I stuck with that for about, 10 issues and I dropped off. So um, it's, um, you know, it's, it's sometimes you just stick with that loyalty until you like, why yeah. am I, or you find you're not reading the books and you're like, I'm buying these and I'm not reading them. Why am I still collecting them? And you just, you know, I did that with the Hulk. I faded out almost right at the end of Peter David's run. Hmm. Yeah. yeah no, nothing kills a book faster for me than bad art. Yeah. True, true. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, Right. That's what I think, you know, the 80s and 90s, and maybe even to the, maybe not quite the 2000s, that's what drove books. I think it was the artwork, and you didn't really care so much. If the art was good, the story could be mediocre or bad. That's not uh, true. That's not true. There's lots of good 80s and, and 90s books. In fact, I got a chunk of them, you know, in my afterburn. It just depends on what particular character you're talking about. Right. What I'm saying is, at least for me, I would follow the art. So if the art was good, I didn't really care if the story was bad. I would read it anyway. Yeah, but if the story but is good and the art is bad, you you might still be able to find ways of, of reading it. Uh, I, I'd use like the, it, the, Wolver- the Wolverine Kitty Pride series, which uh-huh. was you know written by Claremont, and it was drawn by Al Milgram. And um, the art was just, you know, it wasn't wasn't good at all. But the the, the thing is, is that while Al couldn't, you know, draw as crisply, as nicely as Byrne or the other guys, Frank Miller or Paul Smith, he did at least understand the basics of storytelling. He was able to keep the story uh, working with Claremont pretty well. And so it, well, was, it was a series yeah, that you could follow. That's why okay. he was the, uh, he was kind of Marvel's go-to guy when they needed somebody to fill in kind of it's a pinch because he could, yeah, he was like a workman-like. Yeah. There wasn't anything that stood out about him, but he was a workman-like uh, artist that, you know, could get the job done. And I, I, I don't have a, so much a problem with Milgram as 
if they would get somebody on board that would do some really crazy kind of experimental stuff that just didn't fit me and would just kind of take me out of the story, then I, I wouldn't be able to do it. But I, I guess what I'm saying is the 80s and 90s, the artists were kind of the heroes. Yep. The, You're the, right there. Once Kurt. 2000 hits, the writers start the writers start coming forward. Well, let's let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Who is going to uh, cover our next subject here as we wrap up the Fantastic Four? I'll go. All righty, John, who do you have? I have X-Men Hidden Years and Doom Patrol. Oh. So here here here's 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 my afterburn for those two. Ooh, wow. That's going to be spicy, isn't it? Go ahead. I am. Oh. They were canceled. <laughs> 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 so, yeah, oh, so <laughs> um, to actually, the, to um, the point. I, I was the bad. I was the the, the greedy one, and I took the X Men. Ah. And um, I have I took the X Men, or I you know I wanted to do the X Men because I was reading them off off the spinner racks and you know out of a brown paper bag subscription <laughs> or a brown paper wrap subscription, <laughs> and. Uh, you know, so I started so probably when I was. So it wasn't the X Men, but the Triple X Men. What? It was brown, you're brown bagging it, right? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so I started reading them. I, I remember the first one I picked off the rack was probably 106 or something like that. Um, well, actually, it was 107. I found 106 later, uh, but 107 was you know, going to the Shi'ar Empire and the start of that whole uh, two-story glorious art, you know, with Cockrum. And then John Byrne picked up at, at X-Men 108, which had an on-sale date of 977, uh, September 77. And, you know, so I, I wanted to do this because I really love the X-Men at that point. So thank you guys for taking me on, letting me do this. Mm -hmm. So he was the uh, primary penciler for X-Men 108 through 143. Um, and I didn't check this. Sorry, Brian, I failed my research. But I think there was only one fill-in. I think that was yeah. um, issue 110. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and that was... Uh, the Warhawk was, issue. Yeah, the Warhawk thing. I think they retconned that. He was a Hellfire Club spy or something. Um uh, and 143 was the Kitty Pride Christmas uh, special, and we talked about this on episode 33. So, folks, if you want to hear about that, go ahead and do that. And that was on sale in December of 1980. Uh, there was uh, 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 Dave Cockrum, then became the regular pencil as of X Men 145, and there were a couple of uh, fill in artists, I think. Uh, at that time, Dave Cockrum was probably not as quick. And um, was he ailing at that point? Um, uh, but I'm not sure. Uh, so Bill Senkiewicz filled in. Brent Anderson filled in. Uh, there was a James Sherman. And then the one issue of my favorite fill-in artist, although Brent, Brent Anderson was a, a really good one. Uh, I liked his artwork. was the Bob McCloud issue of 152. Um and that cover with Storm and White Queen fighting each other was just, man, I love that cover. It was so cool. <laughs> um, so that was a, that was a uh, good. But Dave Cockrum filled in from 145 to issue 165 with those 
occasional fill-ins. I think there was probably six issues. Yeah, now, the thing, the thing about Dave Cockrum is that he was not a fast penciler. And yeah. when he was on the X-Men, uh, his first run, where his art was just so beautiful, the books were coming out every two months. So, yeah. so he had time to do it all. But he still ran behind, and that's basically why Byrne got brought in. And then, you know, they find out that Byrne can do this stuff really, really quick. And next thing you know, Byrne's doing three books a month, three different books. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. So when, when, when Cochran came back in, you know, he would sit there and do a couple issues, but he'd get a fill-in by someone else to allow him to catch up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, Paul Smith took over as of 165, and I didn't see how long his run was, but it was for quite a f number of years, like four, four or five years maybe. Uh, I don't think Not it was that, that long. One. It was 10 issues, really. He, was it only 10 one. issues? Yeah, because uh, J John Romita Jr. took over after the uh, the wedding. So uh, oh. 175 was the last issue of Paul Smith, and John Romita Jr. started the artwork uh, uh, like two-thirds away through the book. Oh, okay. Uh, I thought yeah. it was longer than yeah. that. But... So, so uh, yeah, I mean, Paul Smith's run was really, really short. And the, the, the thing is, is that it was here during the Smith run that the sales of X-Men actually started shooting through the roof. Uh, people talk about how John Byrne was the one that breathed life into the X-Men. He did, but the sales were rarely ever over a hundred thousand when Byrne was on the book. It was only after he left the book that people really started taking notice of it. And then it started getting acclaim and started getting that legendary status that it has mm -hmm. now. I'm sorry if I'm overstepping okay. what you're saying, I, I'll shut up now. No, that's okay. No, no, that's, right. that's, I think you're very right, Brian. That's how I remember it going down, and I was buying every issue. Yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, okay. So, John Romita Jr., then. Cool. Um, I thought, for some reason, I thought Smith had definitely lasted longer than that. Um, well, again, uh, John Romita Jr., when he came in, he was, you know, basically trying to keep that style going. He was very good yeah. at, at, at getting other people's style or staying in the Marvel House style. Um, then, but around this time, of course, now when Romita Jr. left the X-Men, he left at the insistence of Jim Shooter to work on Starbrand. I, I found all of this out rather recently. Tim and I had covered uh, Starbrand, um, you know, Burns run on Starbrand. But, and, and I'd made a mistake of saying that, that Romita was, was really wanted the Starbrand job. He didn't. And um, he actually had to leave the X-Men to work on Starbrand. And there's where you see the, the, the big change in his art style. But mm. uh, he was following along with what Smith was doing, and so that's probably why you didn't realize that Smith had left so quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there you go. So, so where does the where does reason that... leave then? Where does, just side tangent for a minute, where, where does he leave in the, the X-Men numbering? Uh, who? Smith? John Romita Jr.? John Romita Jr., where does he... Uh, he was there... Through the 200s, um, the start of the 200s. I thought he left at the two, kind of around after the 200s, didn't he? Yeah, uh, he was in there. I'm sitting there looking at this right now. He was about in, in the area of the 220s, and I'm going to find out for you here. That's that's good enough for me. That's okay. that's helpful. Thank you. Yep, because that's where Mark Silvestri came in. I know Brett yeah. Levins did an issue. And... Okay, so I'm sorry, John, go ahead. Yeah, it looks like it's early 200s or Kirk. Okay. Yeah, maybe. I remember uh, the feel of the book changing, and that, that that confirms what I thought. Go ahead, John. Yeah. 
But it looks like the uh, reason he left the X-Men uh, was um, uh, differences with Chris Claremont. And he, um, I was looking at a um, CBR article where they claimed that he was getting more irritated by the fact that although he was the main plotter of the series, Claremont's script would be the final word. Uh, so whatever Claremont wanted, he could be added last minute. And um, <laughs> so, I, you know, and I, I, I saw that on his Burn Robotics as well, that he had just, you know, too many creative differences or conflicts with Chris. So that's why he quit. And then, uh, but apparently the Fantastic Four deal was already in the works. And um, uh, so... I guess some of the rumors are is that he quit to do the Fantastic Four, whereas I think he was already going to be doing two major books um, had things gone in the what if John Byrne had not quit the X-Men universe. So, um, yeah, for me, uh, uh, I didn't find the loss of John Byrne on the X-Men as jarring on X-Men as I did on Fantastic Four <laughs> thinking back. And I think it was because probably the strength of the characterizations going forward, because the writer was still the same. So even though the art changed, and I think it was probably a good move for them to bring Dave Cockrum back, because we were familiar with Cockrum's work uh, from the first aspect of it. And uh, so it felt really familiar. And, and Cockrum is a strong artist, and he is a good layout, and and can really do all of that stuff that kind of kept the feel going, even though the art style was so different from Burns, in my opinion, you know, um, it was not as crisp uh, as John Burns is, but um, uh, still very, very strong. And then even the fill-in artists did a really good job. And probably Brian, like you said, they probably did a, their best to maintain the, the feel of the artwork so that it wasn't quite as different. Well, yeah, so. you know, I'll say this is that, um, despair, uh, the, the issue 144, the one after Byrne left, <clears throat> Brent Anderson, uh, was the primary artist and Joe Rubenstein did the inks and, uh, the character despair, we'd seen him in Marvel team up done by Byrne and Claremont. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, Brent's version of despair, uh, very, very much mirrored what Byrne had drawn before. And while the rest of the art was definitely not burn art, it was it was very good, very serviceable to the story. And it brought in things that were really interesting. And if you all don't remember, Brent Anderson was the actual artist that did the graphic novel God Loves, Man Kills with Chris Claremont, which is considered oh, yeah, one of the cornerstone such... graphic novels uh, and probably one of the better X-Men stories ever done. Uh, beautiful book. The plot line of it was, it was basically bastardized for the X-Men movie X-Men 2. X-Men United using the Reverend Stryker story, but they made him General Stryker instead. But yeah. I, I was just, even though Byrne wasn't working on this story, um, I, I, I didn't have a problem with it not being Byrne because of the way the story was done. The, yeah. the flashbacks and all these alternate things that they did uh, showing the X-Men dead at the hands of the Sentinels or Gene uh, coming back and, and morphing between Jean Grey, Marvel Girl, and Phoenix, and Dark Phoenix, and then, of course, the Man-Thing's involvement in the story. This was a good story, and it was it, it, it was a good... I don't know if this is something that Byrne and Claremont would have done if Byrne had done any art for it, or if he had complete, quit so completely that uh, he hadn't done anything on there. But I thought Brendan Anderson did a fine job. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think the book did really well. well obviously, <laughs> did really well. Well, the, the front cover, fan, even the cover um, itself, you can't tell that isn't Burn. When you look at that the, cover, if you're just looking at it cursory, you're not going to sit there and think, "Where's Burn?" Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, just my opinion. I could be wrong. <laughs> no, no, good, good points. That well, it's that reason why I think that the the continuation, the afterburn, is not as as um, burning, Dram- dramatic. <laughs> it's not as dramatic, or or it's not as jarring. It's not as unpalatable. I mean, you didn't want to drop the book because you didn't like the art, because the art was still good and it kept it well i'm not saying that the other artists were good but you still appreciated the artwork of it and and the characterizations i think went through because he wasn't the sole creator he was co-plotting with chris claremont who was doing the scripts and all that so Uh, well i think that helps having having the writer still there and not changing the whole team you have these have one guiding voice that kind of keeps it on track so it still doesn't feel an, an absolute abrupt like right turn to oh this is completely different yeah the the characterizations the changes that he made were made gradually so like with the whole storm thing and the introduction of the marauders and the the underground people and stuff like that not the marauders i forgot they were recalled the morlocks so the morlocks yeah, yeah. Morlocks. so yeah so um I don't think I, I think the um, and uh, as, as you all said, you know, the sales went through the roof. So um, uh, it's not saying that people weren't buying because of burn, but um, the the collaboration to that point had created such a good dynamic with the characters that it just people were still interested afterwards. And I thought that was good. But, you know, it, well, I think go ahead, go ahead, Tim. Oh, I'm just sad. I think the with Claremont and burn on, on the books, they created a lot of momentum and yes. he just wasn't there when suddenly that picked up speed and it was like, Oh, this is, you know, it's like a lot of, just like a TV show. Maybe, you know, you may come in at the third season and, you know, the first two seasons were what kind of everybody was talking about. And then suddenly you're coming in and it's like, Oh, this is pretty good. So it's like X-Files that show didn't get hot until season three or four, but the, st- the groundwork was laid, you know, so burn was there to kind of create, the you know he got the train running and going down the tracks and it wasn't he left and then it just started barreling down the road. <laughs> yep. Yep. David, Kirk, what are your thoughts? Oh, I agree. Um, that's how I recall it as well. Um, it was the fact that the uh, the Dark Phoenix saga, which we didn't have a name for at the time, but because that had hit, that was one uh, one high point or or explosion of interest because everybody was talking about it after the fact. And then the Days of Future Past two-parter, which was a stunner, and everybody yeah. was talking about, but Thurn was gone, and so it was the impetus from at least that one two-blow that propelled it through the period of some substitutes and some changes until, in a love him or hate him when Paul Smith got on board, uh, he inherited the Return from the Ashes uh, arc and kind of rode that wave along with the new mutants you have to recall that they were introduced just as he came on board so there was a lot of interest in that school concept mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know we're kind of straying away from where where burn was was creating but it, that's that's one of the reasons why i felt that it rode so high and i remember feeling terribly terribly excited when 174 
came on board and they did the reveal right at the end that, yeah, somebody had been playing with Cyclops and the others and that Dark Phoenix apparently had returned. I was just thrilled when I discovered that it was Mastermind because I had called it at that point. And then the yeah. next issue, 175, when they changed artists for the last six or eight pages, I just thought that was a travesty. It was like, <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, all right. So they got off stage, but it was just he should have been able to finish or they should have waited and, and given him time to finish those additional pages, if at all possible, because I just thought that was dreadful. And but I think, now I'm off topic. Um, and I think uh, something else if you, that's that's different about it is Unlike the FF and some of the other the other runs we're going to talk about, he wasn't the sole creator. So it wasn't like, okay, what was Byrne going to do? It was what was Byrne and um, and uh, uh, Claremont. Claremont. Okay, sorry. What was Byrne and Claremont going to do? It wasn't Byrne. Wasn't he? Wasn't the driving force? He was, you know, half of the equation. So unlike the FF, whatever Byrne was going to do, that was going to be completely up to him. You know, and whatever editorial was going to let him do. Same with, uh, you know, when I covered the Hulk and some of the other series. So this is interesting that what what could have been would have been more of a, you know, he was just a part of the uh, uh, of the process and not just his driving force. And, you know, there were so many different unusual plot lines that were supposed to be coming from them that uh, they did they didn't go through with uh, some sort of robot Cyclops storyline. And then, of course, uh, bringing Phoenix back as a villain, a reoccurring villain, something that we're, we're seeing now in Elswin. But um, just, you know, the, that the, the work of those two together was like the Beatles, and breaking them up was like breaking up the Beatles, uh, so much so that there are people that still today hold a grudge against Byrne for leaving the book. <laughs> that's, that's kind of ridiculous. It's like People will. People will people. Yeah. David, haven't heard from you. What do you think? Actually, I think you guys covered it. You know, I know we've got all five of us here, um, so I don't want to beat dead horse too much. I mean, it's always tougher when you're talking about kind of tentpole characters. You know, it's not like, oh, Byrne left the book and that was the last we saw of the X-Men. You know, unfortunately, you know, they, they soldiered on. We, we've had, um, you know, some good runs, but I think you guys have covered it. I mean, he he... His stories, you know, with uh, Claremont have stood the test of time, and I think we've we've brought this up in a few other mm-hmm. podcasts that there are some stories that we have fond memories of, and you go back and you read, and you go, you know, looking at it through <laughs> adult eyes, right, or more experienced eyes, this is not as good as I remember it. Uh, most of what Byrne did with Claremont, you know, uh, holds up really well, looks great, reads great, you know, there's still great stories. So, you know, um, did the X-Men fade into obscurity? No. Um, and John did a great job of kind of uh, explaining what came after. Um, so that's, you know, I there's there's a chunk of the X-Men. And, and you could, you know, I know for some people, like, they, they only like between 100 and 200. And then they're done with the X-Men. You know, they won't read anything after that. I can understand that because of the feel of the books. And... And because the the uh, ensemble cast is so familiar, um, you know, maybe Claremont wasn't grabbing ideas from far afield or wasn't 
weaving in new characters, but uh, well, he was. I, I can understand that approach. I mean, well, yeah, you're right. Did, he, he did introduce the Morlocks, and, 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 the, and did, they did, were always drawing in new characters, I guess. The 100 to 200 thing is, is interesting. It's sort of around 225 uh, in that area when, you know, we're, they were shifting artists. Of course, they're getting away from John Romita Jr., and they had a stable of other artists come in to help out, Jackson Gweiss and uh, uh, others that, that did some artwork, Brett Blevins and, and whatnot, before Mark Silvestri took over the art chores. But in this time also, you know, Claremont was breaking up the band and, you know, Wolverine was less a part of, you know, he was there as a part of the team, but he was there begrudgingly. Kitty Pride and others were going off to do Excalibur, a completely different book with gorgeous Alan Davis artwork. Uh, but it was so very British that it didn't hold uh, the readers like the regular X-Men title had. And so the X-Men title was morphing in a big way. And, of course, they were also going through that whole thing with Mr. Sinister where they faked all the X-Men's death and they were hiding down in Australia. So you know, the stories had changed so much that you didn't recognize this as an X-Men book anymore. They weren't in Westchester County all the time. They weren't there with the, the professor and whatnot. And I agree. there was so much that was going on. Magneto becoming a, a hero there for a while, being the leader of the, of the, the X-Men, the teacher for the new mutants. There was so, you know, <laughs> so much crazy going on. I think Claremont well, had they, he was, his hand in too many pies. Well, he was, I mean, he was, you know, to your point, they weren't in, in Westchester. They were expanding because they had the whole, you know, he brought in Mojo and the that whole, you know, that kept coming back, uh, mostly in annuals, I think. And long shot. To your point, yeah. long shot. And they were, you know, that's when the whole thing with uh, uh, Psylocke and her transformation. Mm -hmm. And Dazzler you know, was in. And Rogue coming in and, the, you know, the before, the, you know, her becoming a, a main, really a major uh, character. Gambit, you know, he introduced him. Ugh. The, you know, Storm being de-aged. So, uh, if anything, he was, to your point, maybe he was trying to do too many things because his stuff was very, I would find when I was reading it, I would have to, I would get, you know, this month's issue and I would have to think, what happened? I'd have to go to the last issue and kind of read it because his stuff was so dense and he was had so many plot lines coming and yeah. going that it wasn't real straightforward. And, and in a way, I liked that because it wasn't, it didn't seem kind of dumbed down, but... You really had to pay attention to what was going on, or you would lose track as to how where he was going with the stories. Well, I mean, the X Men is definitely one of the titles that didn't die, or didn't go to obscurity once Burn left. That that much is obvious. Um, does anybody have any final words on the X Men before we move on to our next one? No, I think that's a yeah. uh, good coverage by John. Yes, very Thanks. good coverage. All right, who wants to step up next? Go next. All right, what you got? So I have. Superman. Who's he? And I don't know. You know, he kind of he's this guy. He's, he's kind of an obscure character. Isn't yeah, he? he has only a few cameo appearances, but you know, I'm going to try and do justice to them. All right. So I have Superman, and this I jumped at right away because this was you know my true love when you know I was really just reading everything I could get my hands on in that late '80s uh, into uh, all throughout the '90s. So we know John Byrne did Man of Steel, which was a six-issue miniseries uh, setting up his run for Superman. And in that Man of Steel series, he basically revamped Superman 
depower him a bit um, and kind of set the new status quo. And that status quo stayed for 22 issues uh, with Byrne writing and drawing uh, a very successful run on Superman. Now, he leaves at issue 22, and I have a quote from him about why he left. And this comes from a CBR interview with Byrne in August of 2000. And the interview asked him, interviewer asked him, can you talk a little bit about why you left Superman and the circumstances under which that happened? And Burns says, DC hired me to re revamp Superman and then immediately chickened out. They backed off at the first whiff of fan disapproval, which came <laughs> months before anyone had actually seen the work. During the whole two years I was on the project, although nothing happened that was not approved by DC editorial, there was no conscious support. They even continued to license the previous Superman. At one point, Dick Giordano said, you have to realize there are now two Supermen, the one you do and the one we license. Seemed counterproductive, to say the least, since far more people saw the licensed material. After two years of this nonsense, I was just worn down. The fun was gone. So rightfully so, Byrne is, is, leaves because he's frustrated um, that the merchandising, right, is using... Uh, Kurt Swan? Yeah, either Kurt, Kurt Swan or... Garcia Lopez. Yeah, Superman. I mean, that, that stuff was everywhere. So I can, I can understand why Byrne would have been upset about that, not only financially, but also... What is that? Somebody's Somebody. vacuuming in the background. Oh, okay. Well, a very noisy motorcycle. Just I thought, some little, I thought someone was getting droned. Some little lawnmower thing. Sorry, guys. And listeners. <laughs> so I can understand why Byrne is frustrated. And, in fact, in our next episode round of Cocktails and Comics or Comics and Cocktails, which or whatever we're calling it uh, any particular day, we talk about this, you know, the merchandising, the licensing stuff that's very important you know for these guys that get in gals you know get some extra income and so you can understand why burn would be frustrated that hey everything from lunch boxes to t-shirts and mugs is getting the old version of superman but you hired me to do a new one and you're not even putting that out there but should he that's a sidetrack real quick david but should he i mean should they change whatever their licensed character is that's on bed sheets and mugs and t-shirts every time we get it you can't change every time you get an artist on there because one, you have to send off new. Yeah, but this you know, is this is artwork. A, 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 an historic moment. It was a complete rebirth of Superman yeah. from the the Superman of the past, where you know, I mean, before just months before, you were reading Superman where Krypton looked like a Flash Gordon serial, you know, and and just everything was still so entrenched firmly in like the fifties. Well, I. I think yep. their th their thinking is, well, the people that buy this stuff don't care. It's Superman. They're not, they're not going to look at it and go, well, that's not John Byrne's Superman. That's not that's just Superman. So we're, they're going to consume it because it's it's the character. It's not. And yet, drawn Jim Lee's Superman is all over the place now. Yep, I was just going to say that. <laughs> so they they will change it when they want to, and uh -huh. clearly there was no desire at this time to change it. And I can understand, you know, and maybe it was coming from higher up the corporate ladder that said, hey, don't mess with the money coming in for. That's what I would think. It's got to have some, you know, it has to go back to money. They don't yeah, pay yeah, something. yeah. Don't don't change the face of Superman on the underoos, you know, because we're selling, you know, a million pairs of underoos every every year. 
and that well, could they, disrupt that. They used John Byrne in the sense that they got a big splash and a lot of media attention and had to, to market the, the character or the image or the brand of Superman, and they, he never had a merchandise deal that uh, he was going to get money from from the face of his Superman on underoos and mugs and what have you. You know, he may have been blindsided by that, but I, I see it as a corporate decision that, yeah, we're going to hype the fact that we've Ooh. got John Byrne and he's taking it all over. And it's like, and so, you know, public awareness was raised all of a sudden and they reaped the profits that they could. Kirk, you, you bring um, up an interesting, an interesting point here in that, you know, when Byrne negotiated taking over Superman and doing that, you wonder if he did negotiate merchandising points. Because if he did... It may be two separate departments, I bet. Well, but the thing is, if he did, you know, negotiate that, they're going to sit there, the, the bean counters are going to look at that. Well, if we do the old Jose Luis Garcia Lopez stuff, we... Praise be his name. We don't have to, you know, we, we only pay him whatever we paid him for that. Whereas if you do it for burn, I'm sure it was for a higher percentage. And so... Yeah. Well, was, you don't have to change the, the artwork. Right. You're gonna, you know, the, the, the manufacturers already have the plates or... The right. artwork to run that stuff, and they just run it over and over. They don't have to create new, um, new artwork. Uh, artwork for it. You yeah. know, it's like it's same with. I mean, look at Spider-Man. For a while, it was it was always Ramita, and then for anything, you know, you never see a Ditko Spider-Man. Yeah, never. Uh, and then, and then it, for a while, Bagley Bagley came. Bagley, yeah. Well, it was McFarland too, and then Bagley for a while when he did was doing Ultimate. That was everywhere. You know, when the, uh, the movie hit, so. Yeah, and Byrne doesn't specifically call out that, you know, hey, this was part of my contract with DC. So to your point um, or comment that you raised, Tim, it may not have been negotiated as part of his, his contract at the time, but he assumed it would be at some point. Yeah, I bet it is and, now with every every artist. Probably. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's why he left the book. And so I've talked in uh, previous episodes about um, I came on around – uh, the late 20s or 30s, number a number of issues in Superman, and then went back and got all the Burn stuff, and and uh, you know kept going forward. So after Burn leaves at 22, Roger Stern and Mike Mignola do one issue together, and then you have Carrie Gamble and John Beatty do a couple of issues. So they do 24 and 25, and I, I just call these out because I think DC wasn't ready for Burn to leave. Because whenever you see, you know, uh, a writer-artist combo, and then that changes on the next issue, you, they're they're trying to fill, you know, by time, and that's exactly what they did. So they had three issues that went out, um, which would uh, lead to Roger Stern and Carrie Gamble uh, doing issues 26 through 33, and that really focused on the Superman in Exile, if you remember that storyline. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was a 13-part series. Mm -hmm. And then they leave, and Jerry Ordway and uh, Dennis Janke come in, uh, and they were mostly one-and-done stories. You know, when you look back in the archive or flip through your, your long box, they're mostly one-and-done stories. You just pick them up, read them, pick them up, read them. You know, there's, there's no real long game going on in, in their run. And they go from issue 34 to issue 55. And then my favorite Superman writer and artist comes in at uh, issue uh, 57. 56 is another fill-in issue. Uh, 57, Dan Jerkins takes over the title. 
and Dan Jurgens will helm Superman all the way through. Now, officially, it's to 150. So he goes from issue 57 to 150. Um, when I looked back in my uh, short box, he really left the book around 145, 146. And I say that because, as we brought up previously, the art style is consistent. And this is where it's interesting with Superman. The art style that Byrne lays down in Man of Steel and his 22-issue run is the one that, that those that followed him, and even Jurgens continues all the way through until about 146, where you start to see this wonky, you know, early 2000s uh, art. Hmm. And that's when I fell off. When did Ed McGinnis uh, start doing? Was that or after the 2000s? Yeah. And you're talking about, like, when he gets all muscly and stuff? Yeah, and very lantern-jawed, and he had that yeah, style. Cartoony. Yeah, cartoony. Yep. And that's what you see come after Jurgens, which, you know, in in what we've been talking about, it may be that sales had started to come down, and so they felt like they needed to change a direction. It could be that Jurgens was burned out. But you can read that whole run from, you know, Superman, Man of Steel 1 through 6, and then Superman number 1 from the 87 series all the way through to 146, and it all feels like one cohesive chunk because the artwork basically stays pretty much the same or in a similar enough style that it feels like it's all connected. Uh, Jurgens does have some help along the way on certain issues like Ron Friends and Joe Rubenstein. There's even a couple covers by Gil Kane um, during his run, but just some great stuff in, in Jurgens' run with Blackout, Panic in the Sky, you have Doomsday, right? And of course, the death of Superman, Funeral, Funeral for a Friend, Reign of the Superman, Trial of Superman, uh, and then you have the electric blue boogaloo Superman. Panic in the uh, sky. Yep. Uh, oh, is, is, doesn't he marry uh, uh, yep, Lois Lane Lois. at one point? Yep. At one point there? Yep. So a lot happens. Mullet <laughs> Superman. Don't forget mullet that Superman. It wasn't a mullet. It wasn't a mullet. Yeah. It's not a tumor. <laughs> it was just lo it was long hair from his uh, regeneration process. But, yeah, so Superman does just fine after, after Burn. Um, but Byrne definitely um, was championed by those that followed him in that they did not drastically deviate from what he laid down in those first 22 issues and the miniseries that preceded it. Well, I and, think Superman has a – sorry, David, let me catch you off. Uh, no, it has a – unlike you know, the FF, he didn't he – didn't, he made some changes, but those characters were established, and he didn't really alter them drastically. Uh same with the Hulk and same with X-Men. Of course, he was working with Claremont. But with Superman, he even though he didn't, the character's not, it's, it's not completely different, but he had a chance to really put his imprint on what Superman was. He kind of redid his history right. and his powers and all that to the point where everybody, like you said, everybody make up what up until Crisis, uh, the second Crisis, they kind of stayed yep. what he laid down. You know, he kind of, right. he wrote the Bible and everybody stayed with that. Unlike, uh, and I, that's the one, I think, Superman, Burn Superman is the one character I will hear fans say, that's my Superman, yeah. as opposed to, that's my Fantastic Four, it's Mark, no, that, the way Burn wrote Superman, that's the way they want, you know, I think that's, Scott Gardner will say, that's the way he wants the character written. And, and so, so much so that they brought him back in Rebirth. They, they did, and they merged him with his new 52 counterpart, and the spoilers for 
believers. That's what four years um, old now. You can talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So they they uh, they do bring back um, Superman. He he um, is merged with his new Fifty Two counterpart, which was a much younger Superman. That was part of the new Fifty Two relaunch. You had a younger Superman, um, and so they they kind of took the best of the stories that had been told in the new Fifty Two and merged them with uh, the pre New Fifty Two. Uh, Superman or post-crisis Superman into I've one. I've not read any of that. This is all news to me. <gasps> I'm sorry, I you ruined it. Spoiled it. Is <laughs> that the? Jerk. I'm not going to go of, look for it either. I was reading some of that 52 stuff. The who because they had two books. They had the Superman kind yeah, of as a kid. Comics. He was kind of dressed in jeans and just a cape. As a, he was like 10 years or five years prior to what was happening and. The 52. Was that Grant Morrison was doing it that? It was Grant Morrison, yeah. And I, Morrison, you know, didn't didn't drastically, I really, he didn't drastically change him, but they, they changed kind of his way that he got to becoming Superman. And I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, because there is some good stuff in the New 52, and, and Morrison um, you know, does a good job, and you get some great art. You know, that's, you're talking about Jim Lee, right? So there's kind of a house style that comes along mm-hmm. with the New 52. Yeah in that Lee style, but I don't, you know, for the, the rest of the crew, did you stay on like me, you know, through all of Jurgen's run and, and stick around for a long time with Superman or were you done when Byrne left? I think I, I had to admit I jumped off and came back for death of Superman. So there was a big gap there for me. I, I jumped off at the death of Superman. Um, I mean, as soon as they announced it, I was like, you know, I said, ah, this is a cash grab. And, I was I just got married and you know had to had to you know <laughs> redirect myself in different areas so I I, yeah, I mean I dropped off. I uh, well I never got into the the post crisis because I again I was overseas limited on space and what I and even availability uh, so um, my stuff was sporadic and I got the burn stuff like later after I had got gotten out of the Navy and. Uh, then I started seeing. I was like, "Oh, what? This is cool!" And then, but I still kind of missed it because uh, until they finally came out with a, like the Man of Steel trade, and then I was able to get that. I was like, "Well, yeah, it's pretty cool. It was, uh, you know, I liked it." Uh, and I just stayed sporadic with it afterwards uh, because uh, <laughs> I know someone's gonna hate me. I, I am kind of the Bronze Age Superman. That's who mm-hmm. I like. I do like the mute his microphone. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> um, so you like you like kind of the Neil Adams. Yeah, Neil. You know, I I like Kurt Swan and I like Kurt Schaffenberger's work on that stuff. It just appeals to a certain part of my my comic yeah. book collecting, and I like that. Um, I going back, I do have the the collected trades that came out in the last few years of Superman, where they did. You know, the Superman book and then the action comics and, uh, you know, where they uh, then then whatever the other Superman was, you know, how they had like how the stories kind of went back and forth. So I've got Mm -hmm. about four or five issues of those and I'm working my way through them. And I am liking what he did on the what John Byrne did on the book. So, um, yeah, I didn't really stay with the whole thing, especially when it became to Electric Superman or Superman Blue Red. I was like, oh, my gosh, what you're really. But even that wasn't a new a totally new idea, you know. No, it wasn't sixties, but it yep. was still just terrible. But yeah, you know, I did pick up the, the the 
death of Superman. I didn't pick up the whole Doomsday stuff before that, the big crossover. I picked up the one issue, and, you know, I thought, like Crisis, it was a well-done issue. Uh, but, you know, I knew it wasn't going to be permanent, and I knew it was a, a ploy. You know, we knew he was going to be back. So, that was well, and, and, you know, it was really the DC marketing team, you know, that way overhyped, mm-hmm. um, you know, the story that, that Jurgens was telling you know, but for me, um, you know, panic in the sky and it in my mind, it comes right into to uh, uh, doomsday coming. But it, it actually isn't. It's a, several issues later. Doomsday starts to break through the uh, the container he's in or the containment unit. And, uh, yeah, that's just that whole period there with the totally 90s Superboy with his leather jacket and <laughs> his little glasses, yeah. yeah. His little round glasses. And Tom Grumman art. Don't call me Superboy. But that yeah, don't call me great Super- Tom Grumman art. Yeah, and, you know, Steel, right, um, was fantastic. Um, I loved the Eradicator. I uh, thought that was a cool concept, and uh, I was like, okay. I, I, you know, I've kind of sporadically read back and you know, gone back and read some stuff. I like that Eradicator thing. No, and... the Eradicator sprung from a story that basically was a Fantastic Four takeoff. Was that Dan Jurgens or was that Byrne that put that story out? I don't remember. It's Jurgens. Jurgens, okay. Explain that a little more. That you basically had a Reed Richards character, uh, you know, Reed Richards and the Fantastic Four. They were exposed to some sort of rays and, uh, you know, gained, uh, was it powers or it was powers that were killing them? And, and I'm having a hard time remembering this now. Yeah, I think you're mixing people but up. because the, They all died except for him, if I remember right. And then he. That's, no, you're, you're, yeah, you're confusing that with Cyborg Superman. Oh, okay. The Cyborg, yeah. Yeah, the cyborg Superman was the astronaut that got exposed. They got exposed in the uh, in space, and then he blamed you know, Superman because once they got back to Earth, you know they they all died um, except for him, uh, where he you know leapt and, and could, could control you know technology essentially and metals. But he blamed Superman for the death of his wife. And the Eradicator is supposed to be the protector of, of Krypton's essence, information, DNA, whatever you want to call it. But was he like a was he like kind of like a doombot? Did he he did he believe he was Superman? Um, or he, no, um, he pretended to be Superman to fill the void, but okay. he knew he was not Superman because then yeah. he sacrifices his life to he does channel the Krypton or whatever. And that's what gives him his powers back. So yep, yep. Plus, don't forget what came out of that story. Also, was the uh, destruction of Coast City and what led. Uh, Green Lantern become Parallax, yeah, and, yep. and that started that whole yeah. that whole storyline. So, Coast City's been uh, it's like it's like the the Tokyo of Godzilla movies. Coast City's <laughs> constantly being obliterated. Oh, I would not live there at all. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, Superman did not you know uh, fade off into yeah. obscurity after Burn. Um, I think you know much like you talked about with the X books, it got people interested in Superman again. And it paved the way, right, for someone like a Jurgens to come in, who you know truly does love the character. Which, by the way, he lives here in Minnesota, um, so I've seen him at well before COVID at cons quite frequently. You know, I'll and, I'll, uh, I'll say this right now. Um, I, I, I when Byrne left the Fantastic Four, you know, we we talked about uh, that story earlier and how the the last story was kind of like almost painted into a corner. 
and Roger Stern, with the help of Burns' notes, was able to write it out so the She-Hulk didn't, you know, wasn't dead. Uh, when Byrne left Superman and had Kal-El, uh, spoilers for anyone that hasn't read this 30-year-old story, uh, you know, had Kal-El kill the uh, Krypton villains uh, from that other world, uh, the other the pocket universe, uh, I felt that Byrne had painted you know, DC into a corner. I, 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 I was so sure. And again, this is back in my younger days and I didn't, wasn't keeping up on the trades and all the stuff that was going on in the background, but I thought that was Byrne kind of thumbing his, you know, giving his thumb, biting his thumb to the DC uh, editors and painting them into a corner with Superman. But really what he did was he opened vistas for stories that took him beyond the bounds of earth and, you know, widened and made the Superman universe so much bigger than what it had already become. Just a, a misunderstanding on my part. Just uh, understanding what I knew at that at, at that time of Burns' ego. So, and I could see how a lot of people would have thought that back then. Yeah, but you have to think about that. Obviously, whatever he's doing, the editors are going to have to approve. He's not like he's going. I'm going to do this to spite you, because they have to approve it and put it out. Yeah. So, and, and, that, and yeah. again, I didn't I, I didn't think about such things back then. I just thought, yeah, he turned in the pages and they're like. Oh, crap, right. what do we do? I guess we're going to have to print this and just figure our way out of it, you know? Right, you're right. You don't think that there's somebody else that's controlling everything. Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead, David. No, I mean, that does it for my section. And like I said, this is this is my, my Superman, my sweet spot in terms of my peak reading when I was younger. So this, this uh, I think, for me, I grabbed the easy one because so much of this is still rattling around up there in my my brain mush comic knowledge. Yeah, but you know, I'll, I'll say that I had major disappointment when Byrne left this book. Uh, probably this is the one that, that hit me the hardest out of any of the books that he'd left. I was really upset because I was really enjoying what he was doing with it. And obviously I got upset, upset with him um, about that. But then, of course, when he showed up on West Coast Avengers and other books over at Marvel, I was like, oh, wow, this is great. So you're one of those disgruntled fans that holds it red. I didn't hold it for that long, obviously. I mean, here I am doing a John Byrne podcast for five years now. I think I've gotten over it. This is your therapy? <laughs> Good thing it's not a long-term um, grudge. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. What about you guys? Did any, did any of you have any odd experiences as far as that goes when he left Superman? Yes, I didn't notice that he left, which seems really strange to say, but... Um, I, I was into the book at the time I was reading to a blind fan in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, via cassettes, each issue as it came out. And then, so it wasn't just Burns Superman, but I believe I was bouncing between action comics and, and Burns Superman. At any rate, I was following along and, and, uh, reading these into like 20 minute cassettes. And, um, to tell you the truth, I didn't catch the fact that Byrne had left. Obviously, his name went off the credits, and I just was asleep at the switch. But as the story continued a little bit, I finally tumbled to the fact, it's like, where's the Byrne artwork? And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I hadn't caught it. I just, uh, it wasn't an earth-shattering... Well, it, it was, because I'd heard the bird, the, uh, the buzz, or I read it in comic shop news or something about... Um, you know, the death of the Phantom Zone criminals. But it didn't, it, it was almost seamless for me. I don't recall it as a an abrupt change. 
and I must have stuck with it for at least, um, I don't know, 50 issues. And I recall that I was still buying Superman during the uh, the death of Superman issues, but I don't I don't know if I dropped off there someplace, but uh, it was not a big jumping off point for me. Well, I, I left just because I wasn't a DC reader, and I'd come to Superman because of Burns, so when he left... I kind of, even though I, I enjoyed the book immensely, I, I kind of dropped off and just went back to Marvel because I wasn't, I wouldn't regularly read uh, any DC stuff. I'd pick up stuff here and there if I thought there was a particular artist on it, um, with Batman or, or something like that. But then, of course, I came back with Death of Superman, and I don't remember if I came back because, oh, I've got to get these issues because they're going to be worth a, a bundle, <laughs> or if it was just, oh, this is interesting, let's see why, because it was hyped up, you know. And he it was had, very much so. Um you know, and I was having to chase down a lot of the and some of the, the the side issues. I think I never found that one, the Green Lantern one, where Coast City gets destroyed until much later because I couldn't find it. But uh, I've been slowly collecting. If I if I go to a shop and I'll, I'll, you know, if I go to their dollar or quarter bins, I will. And I've built up a pretty good stack of <clears throat> that run of Superman that I find cheap and I just haven't sat down and read them, but I collect them because I, I think Superman is a character that I like Spider-Man. I think I like him, but for some reason I just haven't got into reading him as much as I have uh, the Marvel guys. So it, it's there so that, if, you know, if, if comics go by the wayside, I've got this huge stack of stuff I haven't read. Well, you won't be disappointed. You know, as Kirk said, you know, you didn't even notice it, <laughs> that Vernon left the book because they stayed so kind of true to his, is uh you know uh, <laughs> drawing that uh you know it like i said it's very seamless up until you know you get to the 146 and then they said previously officially he's on it till 150 um but it's it's a great run lots of great stories in there well had they started that triangular rating system when burn was there or did that come after yes um did they i thought that was like mid 90s cuz i remember it on all the Death of Superman stuff, so you knew what order to read things in. But was that as early as that? I don't remember. Going to pull it up. 1985. I know that was a that was a it was a nice system they had, so you could made it much easier for you to read your books. Yeah, I don't see it. I'm just doing a quick scan here. I don't see it on. I don't know when it started. It must be post 50 because I issue 50. I'm just doing a quick look here. Yep, 51 is when it starts. Okay. So it's not too far after Burma. Um, I just Googled it. Looks like it started 1992 with issue 153. Wait, what? The triangle stuff. I... No, it's uh, issue 51 of Superman from mm -hmm. 1991 has a little one on it, and then 52 has a little four. Oh, okay. Triangle. So your source is wrong. <laughs> no, it's a cover dated 1992. So maybe they were still, they were published in 91, but they were 1992. But Well, that'd be a pretty long publication. Okay. <laughs> January, of, January of 91, but not put out till January of 92. Are you sure I that was an image book? I defer to you then. Um, I'm just yep. reading what a blog poster wrote. He is wrong. Okay. Wrong. But we do know it was not in 1985 or during the burn issues that is correct yeah. who's up next uh what's well, me and kirk kirk you want to go or or do you want to uh be the uh the anchorman uh go no, no go joke you're doing though. hulk right i'm doing hulk yeah uh go ahead and start with that and i'll follow okay let me make my time notes here 
All right. Uh, I have my notes are very loose, so I don't have the the encyclopedic in depth information that uh, that that uh, Brian uh, provided. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, and mine is a little one. We've already covered this, so if anybody is wants even more in depth, uh, download our episode number fifty where we cover Burks and Burks Burns' entire run on um, on the Hulk, which is only six issues. So in a way, this is. It's hard to, because he wasn't on the book long enough to really establish uh, a feel, or like like with FF or Superman uh, or even X Men to know that well he had just really started and then he was off the book. So, but he did lay a lot of groundwork for what came afterwards, and he he was on it from three fourteen to three nineteen, where he switched with Bill Mantlo, where he 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 Byrne left Alpha Flight and Mantlo left the Hulk and they switched, so they did each other's books. And Burr, uh, Burn was the writing writer and artist on this, and he started uh, taking the the Hulk back to recall back to basics. He wanted to take it back to that first six issues um, in the Silver Age, so that he wanted to uh, bring the Hulk into not the mindless kind of savage or the childlike savage uh, character he was. He wanted him to be more like he was in this first six, which was more he was more of a uh, he was in te- he didn't quite have Banner's intelligence, but he was smart. He was cunning. Uh, he was gruff. He was you know a little uh, uh, rough around the edges. You know he was you know kind of a mean guy, and that was what Byrne wanted to do. And he wanted so first thing he does is he splits the Hulk and Banner, so that in this nutrient bath, so you've got a completely mindless Hulk and you've got Bruce Banner and uh, um, Samson to meet you know. First thing Samson does is he thinks because he thinks Shield's going to kill the Hulk, he releases the Hulk and then the Hulk just goes on this terrific rampage through New Mexico uh, until he finally is he's attacked by the Avengers and then Samson becomes uh, obsessed with trying to track down the Hulk and at this point they they're like we're just going to kill him because he doesn't have Banner inside him and Banner creates a new gang of Hulkbusters that he wants to go after uh, and then. Then he marries off. Uh, then he marries Betty and Banner, and that's his last issue. And what uh, he had wanted to do was, his idea was the mindless Hulk would be killed. Banner would, uh, and he mentions this in, in his, I think, the wedding issue, that he wishes he had his own intelligence and he had control of all his power that he could do some good with it. So Banner will find some way to become the Hulk again, but with his intelligence so that he can be more of a, a force for good. And he would be uh, he would be more of the Hulk in the first six issues. So he would be a little gruffer. He would be not quite as um, uh, much, no, not so much a villain. He would, it would be more of a Jekyll and Hyde thing. And he would go back to becoming the Hulk at night. So with the Hulk dead, the world thinking the green Hulk that he separated is dead, Banner would have to kind of, use the Hulk as a alter ego and, you know, only come out at night and try to kind of hide this. And that was, um, that was Burns idea. And I, I found, you know, we, we talked about this when we covered the books, the different stories on why he left. He supposedly, he wanted to do issue 320, which was all splash pages, which eventually became Marvel team up, uh, Marvel fanfare, excuse me, number 29 that, um, he said shooter had agreed to it and then shooter changed his mind uh, so it became Marvel fanfare. Uh, of course, there's I'm sure there's stories that Shooter agreed to it, and then Byrne changed his mind as what he was doing. So that's why he pulled the plug. Uh, 
uh, I think the idea of of, uh, of Shooter not wanting a all splash page issue doesn't ring true because just I think a year from that, Simonson did his all splash page on Thor. So either Shooter, you know, to what Brian kind of hinted at, either Shooter's playing favorites or it's more what Byrne wanted to do, his storyline, or, you know, so there's no real, I think we've discovered that there's no real clear reason as to why he left, but he left the Hulk, and and that's about the same time he left the FF, because that's when he's going over to DC to do Superman. So he we covered uh, that, that Marvel fanfare, and I don't remember, I was looking for which number, but we covered that. We did. Yeah, plug, we covered plug, that with... Uh, plug, plug. <laughs> we did that with uh, Back we'll to the Vins, didn't we, Brian? The Marvel no, fan we did it on our show. Whole, no, we did it on our or, show. No, that, they, ca- they covered it separately. They covered it separately. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's one where he meets the Native American and mm-hmm. has the beautiful yeah. art. Yeah, I presented that. Yeah, and you've got uh, the ties in with the Scourge of the Underworld and all that. Um, so and it seems like, to what Brian said about leaving uh, other books, it seems like Marvel is caught off guard because they bring in Al Milgram with issue 320, and he stays on it for seven issues. He's on it till 327. And he's doing, uh, he's writing and drawing, except for a few issues. He has uh, an artist named Steve Geiger, uh, who I'm not really familiar with. He he filled in. And it's interesting is what Byrne wanted to do is, and I don't know if they're working off his notes, but Milgram kind of does it. He immediately gets the Hulk and Banner back together because it's established that them being separated is it's causing them to die. And their molecules are drifting apart. So they use the vision and they somehow get them merged back together. In the process, they fall into this nutrient bath again with uh, and a, a deranged uh, General Ross pushes in Rick Jones and everything explodes. <laughs> and, when it, and when it's all over, the Hulk is now gray, which Byrne never wanted to. He wanted to return him to the original Hulk from the first six issues, but he didn't want him to be gray. He was going to be green. But this time they brought him back to now he's gray and he's just like that character. He's more, he's kind of more malicious. He's kind of mean. He's gruff. Uh, I think he, at that point he's still changing at nighttime. And then we get a new green Hulk out of uh, um, Rick Jones. He becomes this kind of long haired, uh, younger, thinner looking green Hulk. So in a way you got what Byrne wanted to do. You get the bulk back, Hulk, the Hulk back to basics but then you also have this new Hulk that would have been killed off. And uh, so Milgram kind of stays on and kind of uh, lays that groundwork until uh, Peter David comes on. And then Peter David starts his 12-year run on the Hulk. And I think he is he is probably uh, responsible for more of the complex uh, aspects of the Hulk's character because he comes on and immediately starts – uh, he sticks with the Grey Hulk for a while, and I can't remember when he he gets merged, but I think it's during the Dale Keown series because yeah. he he works with uh, he works with Peter David got to work with a lot of our great artists because he is he his first artist was a Dwayne Turner, and then McFarlane comes on with issue three twenty three thirty. And this is where McFarlane's you know star started to rise. This is before right, Spider Man. Right, he's coming. Exactly, and he's he'd, and he he'd been working on Infinity Inc. over at DC, and uh, they they overpowered his pencils, but you still got to see his you know what what, what he was putting together. But uh, well, it's interesting because when he's he first starts the he's not doing his own inks. Uh, I think Milgram does the first issue inks his, and he has a couple other artists that are inking him. 
so it doesn't quite look like what we think of as Tyre McFarlane, but with issue 341, he starts doing his own inks, and that's when that's full-blown McFarlane art. And we he's on it till 348, so he's on it for like a year and a half. But uh, that's where he gets introduced, where you know he has a big fight with the with uh, Wolverine, and they kind of establish that the I think in that issue that the Hulk is. Uh, he's not necessarily invulnerable, but he regenerates so fast that wounds heal so quickly. They 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 compare it to like a form of cancer, so that when Wolverine just slices him up, he heals almost instantaneous. So um, that's a little more. And then then uh, who comes on after that? I think um, Dale Keon. They have a couple of fill-in artists, and then Dale Keon or Keon or Keon, however I think it's I always pronounce it Keon comes on at 367 and he stays on till 398 and I, I really like his artwork i don't know how you guys feel about it but it's got a, a it's, it's kind of an alan davis type i always thought it was, he's detail. heavily influenced by burn i like characters but they were about 25 percent lighter <laughs> and there are a little yeah there are a little it's it, to me it's got a little more of organic feel to it the way i think alan davis it doesn't quite feel as rigid it's got more of a softer a little bit of a softer uh in the pen in the inking in the pencils and uh so I, I really liked his artwork a lot and uh he stayed on it and then you got gary frank from 403 to 425 who is his look is very similar to keon mm-hmm. and then after that I, it just it became nobody really uh memorable but davis and davis uh was the one that came up with the uh, he brought back in the idea of Banner having been abused as a child and his father being, you know, abused him. So that created the psychological, um, you know, creation of the Hulk, that the Hulk is a manifestation of that, of his rage and pain. And, and so he got more into what the Hulk, you know, what the Hulk represents in Banner's brain. And he eventually merged uh, all of them together with the help of Doc Samson. And that's when we get Professor Hulk, who is this big green, he seems to have Hulk's intel- Banner's intelligence. He's he's nicer. He's a little more mild. He's not doesn't seem to be as aggressive as um, the Gray Hulk. Who would, and for and again, I don't have the issue numbers completely, but he goes to Vegas and becomes Mister Fixit. So he becomes this mob enforcer. Uh, and people don't realize that that's the Hulk because he's gray and they think the Hulk is dead. So he's playing this, you know, seven foot gray uh, kind of mob hitman oh. or enforcer. Yeah, I, I love the whole Joe Fixit era, even with the Jeff Purvey's pencils. Who Purvey's, uh, he made everybody as ugly as sin, and yet it was gorgeous art. And that, that's just my opinion there. Uh, especially as Crusher Creel, he looked like uh, Michael Berryman from the '80s, their uh, <laughs> '80s movies. If you if you know who I'm talking about. Um, yeah. Well, the Mister Fixit was always even in Burns' uh, issues. He did a he drew a comparison between like the Green Hulk and the Gray Hulk, and the Gray Hulk looked more kind of uh, Neanderthal. Brutish. He had a, a bigger brow, brutish. Yeah, he looked more like a, just a brute. He wasn't necessarily muscular. He was just wide and thick. And when they drew Mister Fixit, that's how they drew him. He was more um, kind of a throwback look instead of just a, a big green guy. He was less Schwarzenegger and more just you know. If Fred Flintstone were buff, antagonist, <laughs> kind of, yeah, kind of a beefy mob guy. So, you know, then we get, and then when it once the Hulk is merged, we get the, the introduction of the Pantheon, which he spends a lot of time with, which are these 
and I haven't read these in, since that, they came that's out. That's where I so started to check burn. out with the Pantheon. I didn't. I I thought it was kind of interesting because it was still Kalen's artwork, which I loved, and it was a, a different. It was the Hulk being, you know, he wasn't being a uh, mindless monster. He was kind of working with these guys, which were trying to do, you know, benefit the world or whatever they were trying to do. But uh, and then eventually, I think when uh, David David left because he was on the book until 467. Uh, they the I'd read that the Marvel had kind of forced him to go back to the Mindless Hulk, and that's when he kind of sort of buttoned heads with him and he left. But I think his 12 year run, it, I think he's no more he's known more for shaping the Hulk than Byrne is. Byrne's six issues are well received and they're I think they're well regarded, but and he's certainly set in motion, kind of what what others picked up and led with. But I wouldn't know, say, if that's one of his. It's almost like a little, a little s- small section of Burns' uh, chronology of like this is this little thing he did, and it's more. That's really of what would it have been because he was on it for such a short time. So I, I stuck with it until I think. Uh, so I read almost David's entire twelve-year run. So I really enjoyed the Hulk because I think the Hulk is a character that. It's one of the few characters that can change. You know, they, they can't keep him as a mind. You can't really keep him as a mindless character who just goes around tearing stuff up. So you have to change him occasionally. He can he can be mindless. Sometimes he can have some type of an intellect. Sometimes he can have some you know more of an agency other than just Hulk smash. So it, he's a character that comes and goes uh, with different iterations, as opposed to other characters that kind of stay the same throughout you know their comic history. So that wasn't as in depth as yours, Brian, but I, I kind of just you covered went, it went off. I can remember very well. Oh, I agree. Yeah, that was in depth. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> oh. Did you guys stay with the, or did you jump off? Uh, did you even read the Hulk, the Burns run on, when he did the Hulk? I started with Burn, um, coming on board after with and just keeping an eye on it. But then I, I left. No, I stayed on. For a while, but I don't have a, a good memory of the nutrient bath and the other, um, and you know, Rich Jones. I wish I'd been there for the Peter David run because I hear it's held in such high acclaim. But um, I was I was late in getting on board then. Well, it's being reprinted in omnibus form now. I think he has three volumes. Wow, it's a lot. There's a lot of issues to cover. I think I've got the the. The Hulk 100 or 500 issues DVD, so that I don't know how far that goes up to, but uh, if you can find that, you know that you it, get it all runs digitally. up to basically 2006. Yeah. So now I I started time. with the Hulk with issue 279, and that was where the Hulk had Banner's intelligence, and he was finally being recognized as a hero, even though he had done all this destruction and everything over the years. Um, and it was from 279 to 300 where, you know, he was in the Secret Wars. He's starting to lose his intellect. He goes up against all the heroes. And then Doctor Strange finally sends him off uh, to the other other realm. And then the Nexus right, Nex- reality. Nexus or reality. 300 through 315 is like the Mike Mignola, uh, Bill Mantlo uh, era where he's, you know, doing all the, the stuff there. And while I got all of them, I never really read them because I just I did not like uh, the artwork in there you know Manola's take um, yeah, I'm with you it just uh, just did did not do it for me so 
when Byrne took over, obviously, you know, I'm I'm like there with the popcorn ready to go, and then he drops within six issues, and I'm just like, oh man, <laughs> and you know, I've never made a made you know any bones about it that you know Al Milgram's uh, normal issue art uh, leaves me cold. You know, I've, I've, he's never had the eye for detail that uh, that Byrne has, whereas he does great covers. You look over his history of Marvel. When he's done covers, he's done some amazing work. So you know, I can't I can't fault him for that. And you know, as far as the storytelling goes, he got us from A to B. He filled in all the blanks, but it still wasn't um, compelling. I read it because I wanted to see where they were going to take it, or and were they going to try to get a Hulk back to the status quo. I felt that the vision bringing Banner and the Hulk back together was kind of ham-fisted. I don't know if that's what Byrne had intended. I just didn't see it working that way. But well, no, Byrne was never gonna. He was gonna kill one of them off and just yeah. have a new Hulk. So he was not gonna do that yeah. at all. So I, I, you know, that was that was the thing I had trouble with. But you know, then as as the the stories morphed in that in between era, I was just waiting for someone to come on that that had a good take, and then Peter David came in. And I was like, wow, this is great. But when the Pantheon started up and he had that merged Hulk, I kind of lost interest because I was really, I was ready to go back to the Hulk smash banner on the run kind of stories. He did a little bit of that with Dale Keown and I, w I was kind of liking that. But he, you know, he still got away from it. And, um, you know, we were given a different kind of Hulk that just didn't interest me. I mean, we got plenty. He became of more superhero. Yeah. He became more superhero-like Hulk instead of a menacing Hulk. And uh, again, I think maybe he stayed with it too long. But I think again, I think it's a character that can kind of, you know, he kind of you have to change him up every once in a while, or, or he just he just sticks with the same. Uh, he gets he gets stagnant fast. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know. So that you know, and that that's even from the very beginning. I mean, look at the what, first six issues of the Hulk. They talk about it. I didn't know how, where it was going because he changes from being kind of he's not even ever mindless in that, uh, but he goes from having Banner's intelligence where he's changing on his on his own when you're there there in the, underneath the the, uh, the lake, and he's fighting commies and he's fighting you know men from space, uh, and then frogs. It just it just it's like yeah right. It, then one point, uh, Rick Jones can telepathically control the Hulk. <laughs> You know, because I got zapped when he was in a capsule in outer space. So it's I can see how they might have canceled this, the book because it was like, where is this? You know, where is this going? But I think that's what Byrne wanted to. And I, I'd heard Byrne wanted to bring back the Metal Master hmm. uh, and have um, and have him fight. He was gonna. It was gonna. I guess Alicia Masters had created an adamantium statue of the Hulk. Right. And the Metal Master was gonna make that come alive. And so there's gonna be an adamantium. Hulk versus the Hulk. I um, have never been a Hulk fan, so I didn't pick this up. I I did enjoy the burn issues when we were when we read them, and I was and I have seen a lot since because I'm just not remember my my Hulk was Hulk Smash Hulk Smash. So there are very few times when I picked up a book. The only time I really actively thought a Hulk book would be cool would be when the UFO showed up. <laughs> And I tracked that down years later, so I had a fun time with that. But, yeah, no, I've never been a fan of the Hulk. So this one was, you know, I read the burn issues. And I'm like, oh, these are great. And 
I'm, I'm okay with not reading others. So, but I heard a lot of good stuff about some of these other runs. So one of these days I may pick them up. You never know. Well, it's not like, that... uh, sorry, John, Peter David's run. Um, he did a long run in Aquaman, right? And that's well regarded, I think. Yep. That's when, uh, Aquaman loses his arm or and his, his forearm. And his, but he uh, gets better. Yeah, he does get better. Well, he has the hook, <laughs> the hook hand for a while. He's got the 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 the, the, the spear hand, doesn't he? Yeah. Is that when he, he is, did? Did he kill off his kid? Is that when Black Manta killed Aquaman's son? Is that well, the David run? Well, I don't know if he did that there, but um, the the son was killed in the seventies. Uh, there was a storyline about that. And that was a big storyline from the 70s was the death of he and Mira's son. Oh, and that was in the 70s. Yeah, but they, they may have done something in the 80s with it, too. I don't know. Yeah. Did anybody, and I, I have it, but I haven't read it. Has anybody read the uh, when Byrne returned to the Hulk as a writer but not artist? I think, Brian, you said you've read those. No, I haven't, actually. I've got them, but I haven't read them yet. And Same. I, I have them, but I haven't read them. I've, I've got <laughs> uh, well, I've got it on my tablet, you know, queued up and ready to read. But I'm going through uh, Spider-Man Chapter One and and that stuff right now, and uh, I haven't had much time lately to read, so it's just kind of sitting mm. there. And it's funny, I had two weeks off from work, two weeks off, and I thought I was going to get around and get a lot of reading done, and I didn't no. read. I don't think anything Same. except for what we were podcasting about. You're too busy podcasting. I read 10 issues of the current Amazing Spider-Man run. I was very proud of myself. Hmm. <laughs> Made a small dent in my comic file. Hmm. It's, it is kind of sad that, you know, as, as, uh, as, as well known as the Hulk is, and I will say the current Al Ewing run, the Immortal Hulk, is great. Yeah, I really keep hearing cool. that. I've heard a lot of good stuff about that. Um, it's very dark. It's kind of returning Hulk back to the horror roots. Um, but uh, he's uh, he's 0 for 5 here with us. And none of us are, are Hulk fans, you know, which for as, as big a profile as he has, it kind of tells you why Hulk has kind of floated in and out of you know, popularity. And, and the, the thing is, is like, you know, aside from the, the Hulk TV series, which I watched every episode of that as a kid, even the the follow-up movies, The Return of the Incredible Hulk, The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, The Death of the Incredible Hulk. Um, you know, the Hulk has always been a better guest star than a star in, in a lot of ways because the Hulk that you want to see as a guest star is the Hulk smash Hulk. And, right. and I mean, even in the movies, you know, the of the MCU, the, the Hulk is the one that's done the least amount of money. Um, and, you know, he functioned better in other other things in the Avengers in the uh, Thor Ragnarok as guest star rather than being you know the the main star well if you have Hulk if he's Hulk smash if he's kind of the mindless right. Hulk he has to have somebody to, to interact or react to you can't have that character alone in the story doing something because he's just what's he doing except just going around smashing stuff so he has to interact with either a villain or a hero or something so in a way he kind of shares the book with whoever the other character is. Now, when he's intelligent, you can have him because he can interact with Rick Jones. He can interact with uh, with Betty and other people and other heroes as opposed to needing him to react to something. Um, 
I think Byrne, re- Byrne referred to him. He, he wasn't a big fan of the, what he called the goofy honk, which was kind of Milgram's uh, or Mantlow's, uh, you know, Hulk smash. He he thought he he uh, compared Hulk to Daffy Duck. He says he reacts to everything in the same way, anger. So <laughs> but that was kind of interesting. That's why he wanted to get him back to more of his uh, kind of, you know, more of a gray area of is he good is he bad you know is he is he a hero or is he just out for himself kind of thing so all right well i think we've covered this one good yeah very well done and again if you want to see more of it go to um like i said the the marvel fanfare which we which uh, we can put in the notes but issue 50 or episode 50 we covered these six issues and i think that we covered the did we cover the annual and that are just the six issues. Uh, I believe I believe we covered the angle, yeah. Yeah, briefly. But, yeah. All right, Kirk, you're uh, you're on deck. All right. Um, I'm going to ask for some help and support from my other co-hosts here. Uh, in case you're not aware of when we're recording this, this has been one hell of a week. Yeah. Um, between uh, activities going on in the Capitol that were unexpected to the leak of my kitchen sink. I was up till 3.30 in the morning replacing that uh, plumbing. Oh. So kind of caught me off guard this morning when I was sleeping in. Um, <laughs> so we're going to kind of uh, wing this. We're talking about Alpha Flight, and I'm going to start by doing a little uh, background. Alpha Flight was uh, initially a character called Vindicator. Uh, and guys, jump in. If I get a fact wrong here, just, just jump in and correct me. But he was originally a, a guest villain in X-Men 108 called Vindicator. Uh, the next time we see him is in X-Men 120-121, as he has a team behind him as well called Alpha Flight, uh, developed to be a team that the X-Men can fight. And that two-part story is very, uh, very enjoyable. Uh, the first time we've seen uh, a number of the characters, including the twins and North um, Aurora and uh, Shaman and uh, Sasquatch. And anyway, uh, the next time that we see them, or see one of them, at least, I believe Wendigo shows up in X-Men 140, uh, 141, but I wouldn't really call that an Alpha Flight story per se. So the suits at Marvel thought that they wanted to market a team uh, similar to the X-Men to the Canadian audience. For some reason, they thought they had a Canadian audience. And so they were uh, looking for somebody to helm an Alpha Flight book. And I don't know a lot of the background, but I have heard that uh, Byrne felt, hey, if they're going to do one, I'd rather have the characters that I helped to create under my control rather than have somebody else mess them up. So reluctantly, Byrne decided or agreed to, to write two years worth of Alpha Flight to satisfy the suits in Marvel, the marketing department, basically. And so with, with uh, Alpha Flight number one, we have more or less an origin story of how the team came together and establish uh, Heather and Mac and how there were three tiers of Alpha Flight. Um, the, the main team, Alpha Flight, that was supposed to be the premier group, Beta Flight that was in training, and Omega Flight that I don't recall if they were rejects or the brute force, but at any rate, you had three separate sets. And in the course of the origin tale, um, 
the cards get shuffled accidentally when the first crisis occurs, and some members of Beta Flight are shuffled into the deck of Alpha Flight, the end result is instead of three teams, you sort of have two, those that were called up accidentally and form Alpha Flight, and those that are left behind that migrate into Omega Flight and become a team of villains, ultimately. Spoiler. Well, Kirk, real yeah. quick. The, the characters that migrated up to Alpha Flight, um, they were, like, close to graduating anyway. He was creating three teams, so, like, uh, Omega Flight was, like, the New Mutants. It was the training group. They, he was training teams for the government. And so Beta Flight was the next level up the intermediate, and then Alpha Flight was the primary X-Men team. And when the government disbanded um, Department H, uh, which was what that all fell under, um, he disbanded the two other teams, Beta and Omega, but he thought Marina and Puck were close enough to advancing anyway that he just brought them into Alpha Flight. Oh, I thought that Heather dropped the cards and that she, in, in um, picking them together, she picked up Puck and, and Marina, and that's... Yeah, I agree with you that they were in training and they were just about ready, but they were second team until that accidental shuffling of the cards and that when she put it in, whatever you want to call it, the teleloader or the, the card reader or what have you, they got the call as everybody else did. And so Maybe. They, they maybe. I, 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 that's not how I remember it. It could be, or maybe it was retconned into that, but yeah. Oh, well. Okay. okay. Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. I, I appreciate the input. Um, so we have Alpha Flight that began with issue one. Uh, very briefly, Burns' strategy in terms of how he structured the two years is that he had the team come together, explain the origin, and then he started exploring each one of the characters in single solo stories. So we get a story with Puck, we get a story with Marina, we get a story with the twins, we get a story with Sasquatch, we get... Uh, um, Shaman. I don't think we get Shaman. I can't yeah. remember. If we we did Shaman. Yeah, yeah, because we just covered that in this no blind issue. Yeah, and the Sasquatch story as well on a, a previous episode, uh, which is where he mm -hmm. fought the, where he fights the Super Scroll. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I really like that two part of it, if only because I like the Fantastic Four. Thought they should have done more of a job, uh, or that Byrne could have done a little better job of. of disguising who the mystery villain was until either a big reveal or the second issue. But that's that's my personal peeve with it. So we, we look at each one of the team members in individual stories, and then we have a subplot where Mac is um, drawn into an ambush by a chief villain whose name I've forgotten. But uh, he's, he's set up, and he is, in, in essence, um, destroyed right in front of Heather's eyes. And so you have this gut-punch story in 12 that is also a double-sized issue uh, where Guardian, as he's now known, dies. So it's an abrupt left turn in the plotting, and all of a sudden you have the team that's not a team trying to support each other. So you get a lot of interaction between characters for the next several issues. So now Burns' structure is taking them in, in pairs, you have stories with them paired up so you can see the interaction between characters and developing them as well. And I really liked that because that really fleshed them out for me. A lot of people thought it was wooden and they disliked it. 
But uh, I really liked it because we have a guest star of Logan, Wolverine. You see his relationships with Heather and the others developing relationships. So they go in, in dyads for the next several issues, and then they start doing triads, groups of three uh, for, I don't know, early 20s. I can't give you exact numbers, but uh, we're, we're, we're slowly team building and building complex relationships. Finally, we get to the last act, which is a four-part uh, ambush by Omega Flight and the return of Guardian, which I think is just a brilliant um, bit of plotting. I didn't see this coming. I don't know if the others, if, if you guys saw it as well, but it was so comic, bush, comic book tale of how he survived and was resurrected that you just kind of went, okay, comic book logic, and you accepted it. And then it was immediately revealed, spoilers, that that was a lie and that isn't at all what happened and that it is somebody else impersonating him. And I just thought that was brilliant. Really good four-issue arc as the team comes together and they fight Omega Flight, I believe for the first time that we know of. And you have very complex interactions between Madison, between Diamond Lil, between um, Flashback and... I can't recall all the names, but it's Smart Alec. Yes, yeah, Smart Al. Thank you. And also Delphine. Delphine Courtney. Come up there. Yes. Uh, just, just fascinating. And I w was like all set for it and riding the wave. And then we had something called Secret Wars Two intervene, where the where the the fiat or the mandate was that uh, you had to have a crossover with Secret Wars, and the Beyonder had to appear in your book. So making the best of it, Byrne put everybody in jeopardy, this great conflict, this great problem, and then all of a sudden we have the Beyonder show up who says, oh, you've got a problem with Talisman in another dimension? Here, I'll just solve it. I'm a hero. See ya. And then he goes away. So it was probably the least intrusive manner that he could have done it. Um, I know I was at the Mid-Ohio Con when Byrne was standing there trying to auction off a couple of original art pages from um, Secret Wars 2, Issue 4, where Alpha Flight appears for approximately four pages, and he kept hawking them, although he didn't draw them. He said, come on, who wants a couple of pages of Alpha Flight getting trashed by the Beyonder? Come on, who bid, who bid, and nobody wanted them. And he wasn't doing any great favors of, of trying to billboard it. Uh, because he obviously didn't hold it in high regard as well. So that's a little side tangent. Wonderful Al Milgram, Steve Leloa uh, artwork. So, yeah, you can imagine that exactly. no one's going to want to pay for it. So um, so the, this art comes to an end. Um, it's revealed that Guardian truly is dead and was never resurrected, and the team is just worn out. And Heather makes a very good statement. She says, okay, Hold it, everybody, downtime. We've been going at this. Um, we've gone through a terrible thing. Everybody relax. So she goes off, and she sits in a hot bath. And in my personal headcanon, when they reprinted these issues, they should have stopped with that page, maybe put a next issue box on the left side or the right side that could have been a picture of Mac as she's soaking in the tub with a, a towel, towel over her or washcloth over her head, and that should have been the end of the volume. Byrne brilliantly tacks on a couple of issues, or a couple of pages, rather, 
the very next thing you see is the power goes off and her bathroom is plunged into darkness and she jumps up and grabs a towel or a bathrobe or whatever and goes, what the hell? And immediately we go into the crossover phase where Byrne has agreed with, was it Milgram and Manlo. And Manlo to swap books. So Byrne has always said he had two, he contracted for two years worth of Alpha Flight and as he played out the story and was ready to finish it, he had told 28 issues instead of 24. So his creative bag was empty. He didn't have a direction or an idea where he wanted the series to go. He was done with his commitment. He had satisfied his contract for the suits. And so he found a way to, to um, get a new property, to... to go on to another creative vein and that was the incredible hulk as you just heard so in a you know a rather interesting crossover heather bursts in and discovers that uh, the characters of box and somebody else are literally doing experiments uh to try to find another body uh for one of the characters who is disembodied at that moment uh and they go fishing literally into the nexus and they don't recognize who's on the other side or the other end of the line, but they snag a big, brutish, empty, strong, mindless body, which they reel in, and it turns out to be the Hulk. And that's the end of the burn issues. That's where he leaves. Now, he may have left the story. I don't know if he plotted the next issue or just gave some story ideas to the incoming creative team. I don't know how that played out, but if you go to issue 29, that where the new creative team comes on board, the artwork is a slap in the face. It is a dramatic change, obviously, because they did a complete swap. Um, the direction, uh, the story is much faster in terms of not having the subtle subplots that Byrne had laid and, and uh, that he's known for. But they wrap up the whole storylines, everything that's that's left undone in one issue, and the team comes together for a group hug at the end, saying, hooray, we're all together again. And virtually, you know, the box issue is resolved. Um, they're all together. And so that didn't feel bad. It was a, a reasonable way to, uh, to, to give a group hug. But almost immediately, for me, the series fell apart. They start introducing Madison Jeffrey's brother. If Madison Jeffrey can um, can manipulate machines, well, let's have a brother that can manipulate flesh. Who greenlighted that concept? That's terrible in my book. Okay, so I'll get off my soapbox. And then they mess around with Puck's origin and decide that he's got a genie where uh, living inside him, and that's why he's a um, a small person. He's not a mutant, but a regular uh, person. So it's, you know, just immediately they start going off on tangents. And I can understand they're creating their own storylines and trying to develop additional characters and relationships. But they were so radical and so distasteful, I couldn't stand it. It was a dreadful left turn for the series. And I think everybody that you ask agrees that Alpha Flight ended when Byrne left. And then this other... I'm trying to come up with a... a Abomination? A, yeah. Uh, to damn it with faint phrase here. This other continued storyline of pretenders. There we go. 
of pretenders limps along for a while. And I have to confess, I was of the mindset that I had such an investment in Alphlight. I kept buying the issues, and I bought them all the way through at least 50. And they try to go in different directions. They turn the twins at one point into not mutants, but elves. Um, at one point, they... Um, well, the, the storyline where he meets the purple girl, um, Northstar and the purple girl, I didn't think that was bad. That was a very interesting characterization, and I don't know. I thought it only lasted one issue as they sowed the seeds for that, but I enjoyed that one issue at least. The other, what, 20, 30 issues there are just dreadful, and I, I don't have a clear memory of them except for Madison Jeffrey's brother and Puck. And Deadly Earnest, I think, was a character that came in. Uh, yeah, he came I, in soon after, uh, I think, uh, issue 30 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I, I, I can't recite what the other issues are. They don't live in my memory. I haven't reread them since they've come out. But, so uh, I think this is an example of a series that should have died, that should have been canceled, with about issue 30 and limped along with various uh, artists or teams or uh, constellations of the characters that uh, Vern introduced. And, you know, as he prophesied, they ruined his characters. You know, somebody else took over and, and ruined the property. Uh, anyways, that's about all that I've got. Well, I, so it's, well, it sounds like he didn't have, to your point, he said he kind of, you know, his creative well was dry. He didn't have any ideas. It wasn't like, what would he have done? He was like, I, I told what I was going to tell, and I'm off. So it's yeah. not. So this is a case where, um, when when Mantlo came out, and I I was like you, Kurt. I think I stayed on at least to 50 or maybe past. I think this ran to about issue 75 or more. I, I dropped off. That's... I stayed on for a couple more years at least. Well, Mantlo stayed on until issue 62, and uh, then James James Hudnall like took Alpha over. Light. I'm sorry. I kept hoping that it was going to get better. I kept hoping <laughs> that it was going to, you know, that Vern was going to come back or something. Um, you know, and uh, they say that the best way to vote is with your pocket. Pocket. Yep. And so if you're not enjoying a book, you should get off it to send a message that you don't like the direction. That seemed draconian to me, but now as I look back on my comic buying years, I should have done that. I, I'm afraid I didn't vote with my pocketbook, and I just kept reinforcing their uh, continuation. Yeah, it ran, ran for 130 issues. And I yeah, you, that's my The only ones I've read have been the ones we've covered, and maybe a straggler here or there. Well, Byrne did a couple covers, have... too. Oh, did he? Yeah. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. Let's see. If I remember, yeah, okay, 81 and 82, he did a North Star cover and then did an Aurora cover, and I think he... The Twins. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. I like I like Burns' run on it quite a bit because it was and we talked about this when we covered the issues that he had a he took a very Canadian uh, turn on it you know he 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 involved a lot of Canadian mythology mm -hmm. and kind of the uh, the the magical oh, part of it and, and stuff it was very Canadian centric and that seemed to be gone once he left and it just became just a superhero you know it was just a these are analogs for X Men or the Avengers they were just fighting kind of generic. Um, villains, and you know, I agree, Kurt. I think the idea of making Puck, you know, why can't he just be a little person who right. trained instead of giving him this? He's like a hundred years old, and he has to contain this 
thing inside him, and that's what keeps him young, but it also shrinks him down, and he's in constant pain. It's like, well, I think that was done nowadays. They would, they would, they would claim, well, you're, you're, you're taking something away from a little person, so you can't do right. that. Right. It but, wouldn't be politically correct. Right. You know, and same with the the twins. You know, they don't need to be. They can just why can't they be mutants? They don't have to be elves or fairies or whatever they became. I think that's been reversed as well. You know, the fact I pretty much dropped the book after Burn left. I just wasn't that interested in the new direction or the new art. So, and you know, it was easy enough for me to do that. It was a good breaking point, and um, um, I enjoyed the stories. I enjoyed the artwork, and that was, you know, to me afterwards, you know. Even Byrne has said, you know, like, I created these to be a one-time character, set of characters. He never really had anything for them, but, uh, or apparently. Uh, so this was really him putting in a lot of extra stuff to make to make them happen, and I'm glad he did, because I really enjoyed that that particular part of the run. Well, I'll say this. They kept, I mean, it was, it was brave of him to kill off the, you know, the... Uh, uh, guardian to kill him off so soon and to have Heather come on as uh, vindicator and they didn't reverse that when he left they kept her so it had a it was a female led uh, they never should have put her in, in an outfit though they never should have put her in the field she should have just been a leader from afar and, I agree. and that's, she should have been Professor X well I mean you know he never or expected her to be Oracle. a superhero <laughs> kind of thing he just yeah the person in the chair come to me my come to be my genie my fairies <laughs> my mutants she'd have to rattle off a lot wouldn't work it doesn't have quite the Miles same ring to but her. you know the the fact yeah. that the that the book yeah. did go 130 odd issues you know does say a lot um you know that that it kept the sales at least workable sales you know for a while and uh you know bill matlow staying on the book as long as he did he was on there for several years uh i don't know anybody in my circles that has like a, an alpha flight collection yeah me either but i'm just saying that there, you know that <laughs> so the who was buying these books there was a reason why it stayed around you know that that they kept it around as long as they did um that doesn't mean that it, there's 20 there was, was uh 50, kirks every month that just kept <laughs> yeah. buying yeah, well, it, and it's funny you don't see a lot of the in like quarter bins and dollar bins. I see tons of the burn issues. I don't see the other ones. That's so somebody's right. holding on to them, or they didn't really sell at all. You know what they're, I'm saying? And then they were pulped, and that Marvel was keeping it because it was a Canadian property that they were hoping was selling in Canada. They're trying to appease, try to appease the Canadian printers that were printing their books for them, <laughs> or somebody. Um, I, I just don't it's all, know. But it, it's all political. You know, if they it's canceled, all. what did you say at the beginning? They canceled the uh, the champions, and they canceled what uh, what other books because of whatever reasons. Why didn't they cancel Alpha Fight? Why didn't they just end it uh, with another issue or two? I mean, I just scratched I, my head. It, it, it may just, be, to your point, Kurt, it may be that it was, well, this is a Canadian book, so we're being more inclusive, and they thought they were getting this Canadian audience you know uh and that's why they kept it around but they had to recognize the sales figures at some time i don't have those figures but they they must have been able to see that that i guess i'm making a great assumption that marvel marvel would not keep any book going kirk that they weren't making money on i agree so i'm assuming once it started to get into the 120s enough of the people that had been buying it 
because let's face it, right? As, as readers, we're also collectors, right? And to your to uh, to your earlier comment, you know, like you start to get so invested in it, it's it's well, I've I've already bought seventy five issues. I might as well just keep going. Yeah. How far can this thing go? You know, and and I think it must have been around the, the you know the one tens or you know as soon as they hit one twenty, sales got low enough to where they wound it down. You know, ten year, ten years, ten issues later, and well, pulled, finally pulled tried, the plug on it. They've tried to. I know revive it's a volume it. two or three. I know they've tried to revive it a couple times, and it doesn't run. Doesn't last very long. Um, no, they had a second but, series that ran for twenty issues, a two thousand four series that ran for twelve, a twenty eleven series that ran for eight. Um, I don't think there's an audience for this book. I really don't. Sometimes when they put out things like that, they're trying to appeal to nostalgia, but also they're trying to maintain the copyright on the characters that they to demonstrate that they are still in publication and therefore they are maintaining the rights to them. That sometimes that's all that is. Yeah, and in and in the case of like the twenty eleven series, I remember flipping through a couple issues of those. I think somebody just had the idea and let's I can't remember who wrote it. Let me click on it here. And yeah, Greg Pack and Fred Manlenti, and then you had Ben Oliver and Dan Green. You know, they probably just had a good idea and said, okay, you know, let's, it's just going to be a limited run. Yeah, um, let's see how, if it flies. Let's run it up the yeah. flagpole and yep. see if this takes. Yep, and if it, you know, if it, if it finds an audience, then, you know, we'll turn it into an ongoing. But if it doesn't, oh well. When did, uh, when did know, North Star it, come out? Makes a nice little trait. It was hinted at in the first, uh, uh, six issues it was hinted at some people caught it and picked up on it other people didn't ah. and when it was discussed in the the letters pages within three or four issues uh, 106 issue 106 yeah, so 1992 is when they finally and that's really what that's almost what they're known for now other than yeah it's it's, it's a part of burns chronology but it's that you know that's it's no more for uh outing or coming out or however we're going to say of uh, north star than anything else. Nothing else is. You don't hear any talk about great story arcs. Alpha <laughs> right, <Flight. from> Alpha <laughs> <Flight>. <laughs> That's a really, really good point. Well, we've been talking for three and a half hours. No. Two and a half? Two and a half. Two and a half. Start at nine. Yeah, two and a half. No. We should end this. 10 to 11, 11 to 12. Oh, yeah, yeah. You mean the recording time? You mean forever, uh, Kirk, or just today? No, no, just a <laughs> And we should can't go back in time and cancel Alpha Flight at the right point too. <laughs> yeah, you had the. <clears throat> that's all I've got, guys. I... Well, that's good coverage. That was good. I mean, I will say that the first uh, Burns running Alpha Flight is fun. It's a lot of fun, and and because it's very that we did that Snowblind issue a couple episodes ago, and that was a lot mm-hmm. of fun. I think Burns' take on it, if he had stayed with it. Uh, I would have stayed on the book. I, I think, for, though, that Burns', Burns take on Alpha Flight always was never give them what they think they want. So he never really brought the team together. You know, he took away uh, Guardian or Vindicator, you know, early on. It, it was just his book was never what you're going to expect. And I don't think that he would be able to keep that mantra up for very long. After a while, he would have had to have fallen into a standard superhero Thing. And that's what it looked like it was going with Guardian moving to New York, which I, I didn't understand that, but there it goes. Yeah, you can only uh, 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 defy someone's expectations so long. Yeah. 
before you have to kind of you have to start telling or people get tired of that it's like you know quit you know quit pull the rug out from under you gotta settle in and tell some stories looking at at the first 30 issues of of alpha flight and their original appearances i i don't think there's any question i think burn had two years plotted out or at least general arcs that he knew what he was going to do right before he started i think he knew first 12 issues were going to establish the individuals we're going to take out uh, guardian 12 i don't think he thought it up as he went along i think he he knew the broad strokes and that he was going to bring in a mega flight or ha- have the big reveal at about issue 24 but as he got into writing the stories and some of the one issue stories became two issue stories it spilled over to 28 and i he can deny it if he wants but i think he was enjoying it because of the level of detail that he has put into their backstories and the uh, you know some of the, the backup features the origin of alpha flight what have you i think he enjoyed it even though he may have done it under duress i think you know there there's good burn writing and there's the not so good burn writing i don't think this is some of his high high art work i think his 28 issues shows an attention of, uh, to detail and establishment of characters that he enjoyed that yeah i agree and i think he could have he could have uh, you know, if he'd wanted to carry on i don't know how much more he wanted to tell but he could have told some more backstories of some of the other because uh, uh, i don't he's like doing does he do a backstory for puck he doesn't does he no he's a, other he's than a the second issue he never told a great deal about him or, which is uh, where where or, we got the the the, uh, the genie living in him that yeah. was a blank slate and i can see why they they took off in that direction a terrible decision a terrible story if you ask me but i can see why they noodled in that area anyway well i oh, so overall looks like we've had some good afterburn personally afterburn experiences and some that were probably not so good <laughs> and it all depends on you know the material i guess what people yeah, yeah. With the material what people like with directions they went how they went so yeah good stuff yeah i, I, yeah, I, if, I think if ahead, you Brian. guys want to pick up the back issues of alpha flight as somebody mentioned you can find them in the quarter box or the the dollar bin or what have you and try to piece them all together but they had, did reprint them in collected trades covering the first 12 issues there's another trade that goes um, probably for the next 10 issues, and then there's a final third trade that covers at least to the end of John Byrne, but I think it continues on to issue 30. That would be the way to pick them up. Well, he's got an omnibus yeah. that's out. Uh, oh, that really? Uh, yeah. That's oh, I didn't like know that had stuff. been generated. Yeah. 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 Now, if the the one thing that made all of this research that we did into this uh, so easy was websites like Mike's Amazing World of Comics. And if you haven't checked it out, it's a very useful resource for comics information. Mike Voiles has done some amazing work there, so you can find out anything about any particular book individually. Though, you know, in some cases, we would have to go to the Marvel Wiki to get other things. Mike's giving the bare facts about the books, you know, who worked on it, when, how much it went for, the, and the, the cover date, and then, of course, who did the art and story and everything on the inside. Uh, once again, I just want to thank Mike Boyles for that because it was very helpful in my research and working this together. Yeah, he's great for doing because he has the newsstand option, so you can see everything that came out in a particular mm-hmm. month. 
and that helps to kind of get a broad idea of like you can scroll through that and see everything that's uh, um, that's been put out. So yeah, his his site is very helpful. The, the Marvel Wiki, I think, is I, I I use that and Mike's are the two I use the most to to uh, to find. And you can always tell if a book is popular or not because I was thumbing through the Alpha Flight stuff when Kirk was talking, and all the burn ones, if you go through the Wiki, have synopsis yep. and like side notes and and continuity things. Once it gets past that. There's nothing. I mean, it's got the characters listed, but nobody's taking the time there's to no interest. to write a synopsis. Yeah, there's no interest. There's, in, yeah, uh, there's just no interest. So. Um, another thing, you know, I, I uh, went to Burn site, obviously, burnrobotics.com for uh, some helpful information that I was able to provide. Uh, and there's an update. Uh, I don't know if you guys were aware there had been some trouble with the website over the last couple of weeks where a lot of people had not been able to access it. Uh, depending on the ISP that they were coming through. So some are getting in, some are not. Uh, the guy that's been maintaining the website has been doing a lot of work on it in the background, and now certain things are starting to work again that haven't worked in a long time, specifically the search feature. For the last few years, I've had to go to Google and type siteburnrobotics.com and then whatever subject I wanted to search in order to find anything. Now you can actually go back to the search option. So you, I think you can only use that if you are logged in to the website, which means you have to have a legit email address that's actually tied to your name. Like, um, you know, like if you've got a, a an Outlook or um, Google email address, it still has to be like your name, I think. It's very specific because Byrne doesn't want anybody that's getting onto his website that's on an alias. He wants to know, you know, specifically who's who's doing this so that if he bans someone for any reason they can't just create another email account and come back um i saw somebody mention that that you said it was working and somebody said hopefully he would he'd been banned for like 10 years and so maybe he could get back in <laughs> yeah i saw that um yeah now uh again looking at feedback we really it's not time to change subjects we just we're, we're... <laughs> Sorry, Kirk. That was that was the de facto cowbell we had when we were doing the comics and cocktails. Uh, oh, so that was a goat screaming, apparently. Is that the alarm clock saying we've gone over our time limit? Well, I gotta jump off here. Pretty yeah, soon. And, and, okay. if you guys can keep going, I'll. No, jump I, off. I was just gonna no, say. I just yeah, I was gonna wrap up here and say, you know, at number one, we would like to know what you think about any of the subjects we've been talking about today. We've talked about a wide variety of things, and so there are a lot of topics there to go, to go over. And we'd also like to know what you think we should cover going forward. There's a lot of things that we've covered over the last five years, but there's still a lot of things that we haven't touched. For instance, uh, John Byrne's Next Men, Jack Kirby's Fourth World, Trio, Triple Helix, Danger Unlimited, uh, and I'm sure there's plenty of other books in there that, uh, you know, from his time at Marvel and DC that we haven't just really uh touched so we'd like to hear from you what would you like us to cover sometime here in the near future uh you can write us at our email address which is gotta get burned at gmail.com you can also reach us on facebook at third degree burn uh, the facebook users group we'd like you to join if at all possible but uh, you can always go in and check out you know take a look around and see what everybody's saying about the latest issue um the uh, latest episode that is and, of course, uh, you can reach us on Apple Podcasts, formerly iTunes, where you could leave a nice five-star review that would really help people see us 
uh, and find us as a podcast. We could always use more listeners. Well, what do you guys think? I've enjoyed it. I think we've done a really good job. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's definitely an, uh, a different type of, uh, you know, we didn't talk a lot about, you know, actual burn stuff, but it was more about, you know, I think his, that was the point, his legacy. Though. I think but, it was. Yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm saying, so it's a little different than what our normal shows yeah. are. Yeah. Much like uh, cocktails and comics. Yep. Which is, that's the proper, and the artwork I did, David, it is cocktails and comics. So, yeah. Um, I was wrong. Uh, our little side project okay. we're doing. Yep, yep, yep. Anyway. Well, great chat, always. Yes. Uh, a lot of fun. Yeah. And at this point, we'll go ahead and uh, end the show. But I got to ask, does anybody know what we're covering next time? Anybody want to do an Andrew Leyland impersonation? Next time. Uh, <laughs> do you have any idea what we're doing? No. Well, we don't we know. We don't know. Okay. That's all we got. Dot, dot, dot. You'll be Blank surprised. slate. It's a mystery yeah. box. Mystery box. Surprise. All right. Well, for third degree burn, I'm going to introduce everybody and let them say goodbye each. We have David Thompson. Goodbye each. <laughs> John Hyatt. Goodbye each. Kurt Greenfield. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed it. Tim Elliott. Good morrow to you all. And I am Brian Hughes. Everybody have a great week. Take care. Have fun. Thanks for listening. You can find us and many other great shows at tutufreaks.com. That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S.com. Third Degree Burn is spelled with the number three, R-D-D-E-G-R-E-E-B-Y-R-N-E, and is part of the Tutu Freaks network of shows. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Just look for Third Degree Burn, spelled with the number three, and Burn spelled B-Y-R-N-E. Compliments, complaints, and recipes can be sent to gottagetburned at gmail.com. That's G-O-T-T-A-G-E-T-B-Y-R-N-E-D at gmail.com. Drop us a line and tell us how we're doing. Till next time, this has been Third Degree Burn. Some men aren't looking for anything logical, like money. They can't be bought, bullied, reasoned, or negotiated with. Some men just want to watch the world burn.